Welcome to The Daily Wrap-Up, a concise show dedicated to bringing you the most relevant independent news as we see it from the last 24 hours. Sunday, December 31st, 2023. Thank you for joining me today. Well, I decided to do a little bit of a combination today. We haven't had a on a live discussion with Robert Inlakesh for a while. So I decided to invite him on today for sort of an interview slash daily wrap-up focus on uh, a few different points, but predominantly on what's going on in Israel and the, and the Gaza focus. And I think it's important not only to hear his, to read his writing about this, but to, to really see his, you know, visualize his perspectives and hearing him talk about it. And the reason I say that is because as I've given him a lot of credit for in this entire process, as I just recently discussed with his article, 120 people on his and his kind of family reaching family unit has have been killed in Gaza, which is unbelievable. And for somebody to be in that position and yet still be able to objectively cover this story deserves a lot of credit, in my opinion. But I think he's got one of the most important perspectives on all this because of the personal side of it, but also because of his amazing work over the years on this exact topic. So, Robert, it's good to have you on the show. Uh, thanks for, I guess, co-hosting today. How are you? <laughs> thanks for having me. It's great to be back. Yeah, yeah. I haven't, uh, haven't had you on live for a while, so it's good to get, get you on talk about this stuff. So, you know, I mean, anything you want to start with in general? Because I, I wanted to get into a couple of peripheral points first about Ukraine and, and Yemen we were talking about before we started. But, you know, just how are you, man? And, you know, what's going on? We haven't talked in a while like this. And anything you want to start with people to know about? Like I mentioned your family stuff, and I don't know how much we'll get into that today. But, you know, and people, people care about what you're going through, man. So anything you want to talk about to start out? Uh, well, it's everything uh, in my life really has been consumed by what's going on in Gaza, um, sort of a day to day, you know, dealing with it, uh, trying to process everything that's going on and uh, be there for everyone uh, in my personal life, because, uh, you know, it's not just through uh, my wife's side of the family that we have family in the Gaza Strip, but uh, also, you know, I have a lot of friends there um, and a lot of colleagues there and a lot of people who have family there who are on the outside as well. So, um, you know, uh, yeah, that's basically been my life since uh, October 7 has just been trying to deal with this. And it's been hard to focus on anything outside of that, to be honest, mm -hmm. uh, just because of the massive death and destruction. I mean, right now, including those dead uh those who are presumed dead and missing under the rubble. Um, it's roughly 30,000 people have been killed. So um, yeah. And uh, that's probably uh, how I can summarize how I've been. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I just, you know, and I, I, you're, you're a very humble person, but I just think it's, it's, you know, it does, there's a lot of credit to be able to cover this the way you have, man. And I, you know, I don't know how you do it quite frankly. It's, it's, you know, it's an impossible situation. And so I think, and, and you're right. I mean, as much as this is all consuming because it almost should be, I mean, it's an, it's it, like, I've been saying from the beginning, this is one of the biggest events that I think we will be talking about this for centuries to come because of how unprecedented this is. But I also think that it really does connect in a lot of ways. And I don't even mean like conspiratorial, like that, like legitimately connects with so many different moving parts of a lot of different agendas, not even foreign policy related. And it's, I just think people are, are just beginning to understand that and going back to the origins of Zionism or rather the state of Israel and how it all interconnects with governance of other countries. I mean, it's, it's an unnerving conversation to really get into. And finally, people are, as we'll, I think, touch on today in regard to the, the op-ed from Harvard, from a, a Jewish leader there, are finally finding the courage to acknowledge that 
you know, not that anti-Semitism doesn't exist. Nobody honest is going to say that, but rather that it's obviously being weaponized and has been for a very long time to cover up the crimes of the state of Israel, as well as other many other topics. I just think that's a monumental thing to, to see breaking down. And I think we'll uh, start off early on a point today also about the interesting shift of, I think we'll start with that, the corporate media, you know, and how all of a sudden it seems like they're telling the truth about what's going on in Israel. Like, actually, what, what are your, what, what's your take on that? Like, I don't think they're telling the truth. I think it's a watered down version of it, but what's your opinion of that? Do you feel like they're suddenly telling the truth or, and if so, what's the motivation behind that? What are your thoughts on that? I think they have to mix in some truths, uh, but they've just told so many lies at this point that it doesn't make up for it. But in my personal opinion, when I'm looking at this and their coverage, a lot of it's, uh, taking aim specifically at Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, um, and his coalition. And, and the reality is it's not just Netanyahu who is a genocidal maniac. The opposition are also genocidal maniacs. Um, in his war uh, government, uh, which was established, Benny Gantz is in there. Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid are the two leaders, um, the two most prominent leaders in the Israeli opposition. And both of them as well, have genocidal sentiments. So, you know, in my opinion, they know the U.S. establishment that Benjamin Netanyahu is not going to be in power after this once the war ends. And so they're trying to shift blame onto him for everything. But we're talking uh, about now a conflict which has gone on for more than 75 years since the establishment of Israel. Um, and it's been 75 years of apartheid policies of occupation. And a lot of people think that the occupation, uh, a technical occupation, uh, began in 1967. It didn't. Uh, the people who are now citizens of uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel were under occupation uh, since uh, 1948 up until 1966. Um, so the occupation has been going on a very long time. Israel's policies have always been uh, monstrous and extremely racist. Uh, but now what we're seeing is that, like you said at the beginning, this is an unprecedented event to see that they've killed 30,000 people. Uh, the closest thing they've done to that in the past is when they went into Lebanon. Hmm. Uh, they killed roughly between fifteen to 20,000 people. And then after they expelled the Palestine Liberation Organization, uh, which is the secular organization uh, under which uh, all different Palestinian political parties fit into, which was uh, based in Lebanon at the time uh, in opposition to the Israelis, of course, attempting to try and uh, make a Palestinian state. When they expelled them from Lebanon, then they used their Christian militias to uh, commit all sorts of horrifying massacres against uh, Palestinian refugees uh, and, and Lebanese as well. Lebanese were killed in, in these massacres, which took place. Um, but in terms of the sheer scale of what we're seeing now um, in such a short period of time, um, it's hard to find an accurate historical comparison to what the Israelis have done. I pointed out, uh, I pointed this out before, and I tried to point it out as much as possible, that if you look in the first two years of the uh, ISIS insurgency, in Iraq, um, the United Nations noted that some 18,800 civilians were killed in, in roughly the first two years. Huh. Israel, having killed around 30,000 people in just less than three months, uh, well outdoes those civilian death tolls. Right. If you look at the child death toll alone in Gaza, which is set at around 11,000 now, in Syria, 
Uh, between 2013 and uh, 2023, according to UN statistics, ISIS killed uh, roughly just over 5,000 civilians in total in Syria. That's according to the UN statistics. So Israel has killed in less than three months more, more or less double, more than double, actually, mm-hmm. the amount of children as the entire ISIS death toll in Syria in around 10 years. So that's what we're looking at right now. And then on top of that as well, you have to look at the sheer amount of bombs that have been dropped, the tonnage that has been dropped on Gaza, the fact that the majority of people in Gaza are now homeless. Um, Like we're talking about around 90% of people have lost their homes or are homeless. They've been displaced. Uh, So it's completely unprecedented. And, And many of those people displaced now, what, for the fourth, fifth time? That's not exaggeration, right? I mean, and I mean, I think what for for the average would probably be the, the the original Nakba, and then most some people this might be the second time, but many of them have been removed from these different settlements, right? So that's multiple times for a lot of these people. I I just that's a part that sticks with me. The idea of I, I just saw a video that really resonated with me. I think I actually I think I'll, I'll actually end with that today. Just the, talking about these people that just rebuild every you know the the idea really his main point was what they're attacking mostly here is hope. The idea that these, you know, you just the, the resilience of the of the Palestinian people to continue to come back and rebuild their homes and try to re- and live their lives in an unimaginable horror and then have that destroyed again and destroyed again, it just really sits with you, you know. And to your point about the the children, I want to include these the stats that like it's the it's the fine points that stand out more than anything because what you keep seeing is this conflation with like you said, oh well, this many children died in Syria and they forget the fact that that was a longer war with more people and you know it's it's un, it is unprecedented, but we have numbers that show the horror. Nine thousand children amput- amputated, right? Having one having one arm or leg amputated. And I think it was actually nine thousand without anesthesia, if I remember that correctly. 50,000 pregnant women being forced to march along. You know, I mean, these things really stand out to the average person. You just can't conflate that with some other other focal point, you know? So it's 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 really unnerving. So back to the original question. Oh, actually, one thing I want to ask you before we get back to the media. You mentioned Gaza and the occupation there. I'm actually glad you brought that up because this is one of those sticking points that people use to, to confuse and manipulate. So I'm glad you said that. So obviously, as the UN has always maintained, it's an occupied territory, Palestine, not just Gaza. But then the Gaza point, where there was the militarization and then the removal, they claim, really, of just while maintaining control of literally everything. So it's still an occupation. But can you explain that for people? Why, one, they're still clearly occupying all of Palestine and specifically Gaza, whether or not they pulled out, and why that's a confusing point for some people and how it's misused by, by Zionists? Yeah, well, there's three different uh, types of occupation which are are going on, which people don't know about. So there's the occupation of the West Bank, where uh, Israeli forces, they have their military uh, in uh, the area. I won't go into the breakdown of area A, B and C. Um, That occurs in the West Bank. So that's like a full on Israeli internally occupying uh, the West Bank. But even in the West Bank, you've got area A, for instance, where the Israelis will enter whenever they want. Don't get me wrong. Uh, But that's under the de facto security control of the Palestinian authority. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Israeli soldiers aren't marching through central Ramallah every single day. They're on the periphery. They set up checkpoints. But if you go into Ramallah in the West Bank, uh, where the Palestinian authority is based out of, you're not going to see Israeli soldiers in central Ramallah. They play with semantics and and try and uh, depict a situation which isn't the reality. Then you have Mm -hmm. East Jerusalem which under international law, again, is 
occupied. Now, Israel illegally annexed the territory, actually, East Jerusalem, mm-hmm. um, which the international community has completely rejected. The only one really to recognize it uh, is the United States, actually, to say that, that was, we recognize this annexation. It was Trump's um, administration, correct? Trump's administration, yeah. exactly. Um, and, and Biden has carried that on. He mm-hmm. still recognizes it as Israel's undivided capital, or whatever they say, um, despite saying that they want a two-state solution, which doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But regardless of that, um, the occupation inside of East Jerusalem looks different because Israel annexed it. So they have police there, police forces as their occupying force. It's not the army. So it's completely different. And Palestinians in East Jerusalem have a special ID, a Jerusalem ID. Hmm. Um, so that's a different system there. I won't go too deep into it. Um, and then you have Gaza. And in Gaza, there was an occupation internally inside of Gaza like there is currently today in uh, the West Bank. But because the people of Gaza resisted and put up a lot of resistance, and also the second point here is Gaza, biblically to the Israelis and the Israeli settler movement, isn't as consequential and important uh, to the Israeli settler movement as the West Bank. So Mm -hmm. they saw that it was getting dangerous for them and their soldiers because of the resistance there. And what they did is they took their forces from occupying internally. um, So Gazans could go to the beach, Wow, what a what a privilege you could go to the beach while you're still under occupation. They withdrew to the uh, periphery, um, but they then what and they took the settlers out, a few thousand settlers, uh, these sort of nut job crazy fanatics that they mm-hmm. they pulled out, and then they put in settlements surrounding Gaza, militarized set- settlements surrounding Gaza. Um, and in 2006, you had the election, the Palestinian legislative election, which Hamas won. And when Hamas won that election, Israel then placed a blockade on Gaza. Um, the United States and the European Union uh, uh, put sanctions on on Gaza, so nothing comes in, nothing comes out. Israel had complete and utter control of the situation. So, what the occupation of Gaza was worse because of the blockade and because of the economic sanctions. Then, in two thousand and seven, the U.S. Bush administration, without authorization of Congress, of course, of course. Uh, because they never go to actually ask Congress for these things, uh, put funding towards uh, an illegal coup attempt uh, mm-hmm. using uh, Hamad Dahlan, who was the head of the preventative security forces of the Palestinian Authority, to take by force the democratically elected governing force out of Gaza. But Hamas saw it coming and they preempted it. And uh, they quashed that coup that started like this. They call it the Palestinian civil war between the Fatah party and Hamas. When when they kicked the Palestinian authority uh, out, which uh, was seized by Fatah, uh, then Israel uh, doubled down on its blockade in 2007. Um, and so they control everything. They control the airspace. They control uh, the waters. They control the entire, uh, they call it a border area. It's not really a border. There's the Rafah border with uh, Egypt, mm-hmm. but there's not a border around the Gaza. You've got like armistice lines um, and the separation fence, but it's not a border because right. Gaza is not a state. Right. So it's still an occupied territory, according to the International Court of Justice, the United Nations, the majority opinion of, of countries in the United Nations, um, every single international legal body, human rights organizations, etc. Common et sense. 
I said it just common sense. sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that's the frustrating part about this is you have all the evidence everywhere, including the international bodies that you they tell you you're supposed to look to, you know, and it, it's all very clear. And so I'm glad. Thank you for explaining that, because that's you know, there's a lot of information there. And even then, I'm sure you could go on for another hour about the different finer points. And so it, it's important for the average person to understand the just inherent, blatant, willful lie that's being spun around that 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 point. And, and again, to the beach point you made, even then, you know, there's supposed to be allowances to be fish to fish. But as you pointed out in many interviews in the past, that the, the allowance, even though they're supposed to be like legally allowed a certain amount, Israel changes that day to day and they're not notified about it. So people just get shot for being one mile out in the ocean or, you know, whatever it is. And it's just it's always under control, you know, and I actually just saw an interview with Mark Lamont with a former Israeli official. Uh, saying the same, you know, basically pushing back on the same point. Like they have complete control over every single aspect, including the Rafa border, even though Egypt, yes, controls their side of it to argue that somehow they're allowing Hamas to have control over what goes in and out. I mean, that's, it's just comical. I mean, it doesn't, it's, it doesn't make any sense. So thank you for that. So let, let's start with uh, the point about for Ukraine, really, I wanted to get into, and I'll, I'll include this, by the way, since you brought up the Hamas points for people that don't know that clearly Israel has been funding Hamas. It's stated by Netanyahu. It shouldn't be a secret anymore, but people still don't seem to, to know that point. But let's start with the, the Ukraine point. But really, this goes into the larger point as well about why the corporate media seems to at least be giving you some things that we would argue are true. And this comes from a report, uh, this is from Clandestine, discussing a Ukraine launch with NATO weapons on a civilian location, killing what started out 14, turns out to be 22, even reported by the New York Times. Ukrainian missile attack on a Russian city kills 22, hitting civilian locations, reported in the article. So just really quickly on your thoughts on that and how interesting it is that suddenly Ukraine doesn't matter. And now they're going, yeah, they killed civilians even before you have evidence of them bombing the Kramstock train station or Poland with a bomb, you know, and, and it doesn't really get this kind of critique. So why do you think it's happening now? And then again, we kind of already touched on why they're shifting their truth. Well, uh, I'm not an expert on uh, the Ukraine war, but it looks mm -hmm. like they're, uh, it's coming to an end soon um, and mm -hmm. that uh, it's over for the Ukrainian side. Um, and it looks like they're committing acts of desperation at this point. And the U.S. media, to their credit, at least reported on this. Um, and uh, their biased reporting on Ukraine has been very clear for the entirety of the two years of the conflict. Now we're heading into two years. Mm -hmm. um, but... It, it, when we're looking at what's uh, going on uh, there, it, it's interesting because the United States government is still condemning Russia. And they say that Russia has uh, tried to commit genocide and that Russia is an occupying force and Russia illegally annexed territory and Russia killed civilians and Russia bombed them all. Oh, my theory with this uh, and the way that the United States government speaks is that Russia is not sufficiently defending itself. In order to defend yourself properly, you need to massacre 11,000 children and 30,000 civilians. I'm sorry to laugh that's about that, but it's just like, that's such a perfect point. I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, like sufficient self-defense is to massacre 20 times plus the amount yeah. of people that are killed on your side at civilians. Can't go after soldiers. That's where Russia's going wrong with its self-defense. It's killing too many soldiers. It needs to kill more children and women and elderly people in order to get the U.S. stamp of approval of self-defense. 
Gosh, for those that can't pick up on sarcasm, he's obviously making a joke about the yep. comparative, the, the way that you can like, as even Matt Miller will argue, we know we need to investigate every single bomb to be able to do, but Russia comes out and does one They they, they, you know, whether or not they commit what you think they did, they didn't even investigate anything. They call it genocide. And it's just such a hypocritical stance. And you're, the, there's just no comparing the two discussions. Interesting point though, when you talk about an occupying force, this is an important legality around this, right? So the argument would be, in the midst of warfare, territory is taken or, or you know, I guess temporarily occupied. That's there's a more legal word for it. And then it becomes a legal occupation if you don't remove after the war, right? And this be, this is where Israel kind of makes this argument that they've always made. They've been in some on forever war when they want to, but then argue they're not when it suits their interest. But so you couldn't argue Russia is occupying. Moving from Crimea and Donbass from the conversation, even though we can prove they're not illegally occupying those other parts of Ukraine. Technically, right now, they wouldn't be because they're still in an ongoing war. Is that correct? Well, the difference between occupation and what's called an annexation is that an occupation Mm -hmm. is temporary. So if you're in a territory temporarily and you don't want to seize that territory, for instance, in the Donbass and in Crimea, Russia annexed the territory, right? Legally, um, yeah. And so it, it absorbed it into its own country. Mm-hmm. And they um, voted and for it in both places. Yeah. yeah. So they had they had votes for it and, and they had this whole process. The United States will say that that's illegal and, and it's wrong and whatnot, <laughs> even though they recognize that the Syrian Jolan, which no other countries recognize really as part of uh, Israeli territory, is, uh, yeah, yeah, they annexed it. That's fine. That's their territory. And East Jerusalem is Israel's territory too, despite the fact that that's a violation of international law. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were no votes there by people to right. join into Israel. They just took it and declared that it's theirs in the 80s, uh, the it's early just 80s. So obvious. <laughs> it's just so, it's so on the face of this conversation, you know, and, and again, while they're allowing the biggest genocide we've seen in our lifetimes and calling it legal and rules based international order, it's just that this is largely why I think people are so aware of this. You just can't. This just doesn't work. doesn't matter how stupid you are. You, this is just doesn't work. And either you're invested in the narrative or you aren't. I think that's all that's happening right now, quite frankly. I think it's it's quite clear for everyone to see what's going on. The finer details, I think, um, yes, there can be, uh, you know, discussion on finer details about what's going on. Uh, we can debate whatever. We can talk about October 7. We can talk about different strategies the Israelis have. We can talk about Hamas. We can talk about everything we want. But at the end of the day, it's very clear what Israel is doing. Right. I, I, I don't think agree. anything clouds that. I think anyone with the most basic understanding that just goes into this and looks at numbers and just looks at the videos and photos and sees what Israel is doing, and just does a basic Google search on it, could see what's going on. Right. Exactly. That's the point I made before about, you know, in the past, they'll tell you, you know, if you're if you're questioning this or that, we'll look to the UN, look to Oxfam, UNICEF, all these groups. And now they're all saying the same thing. And now they're just they're Hamas, apparently. Like that's this, no more, to, no more statement. Just they are Hamas. You know, it, it's, it's insulting to your intelligence. Last on this point, he just, he points out the Russians have called an emergency UN security meeting because of this bombing in a civilian location in Russia. And the officials in Russia are blaming the U S as I think is an obvious case to make Russian ambassador is saying that they spoke to the media and they're saying the U S is waging a hybrid war against Russia and also basically trying desperately to get them to respond. I think that's a fair statement. I think they've all, like with Syria, that's a classic tactic. When they respond, that becomes the impetus for the point, and you forget about the original point, you know, actions. Now, we also have the point about this. Now, I know we have a limited time today, so I just really want to include this, and you can comment on it if you want. Uh, U.S. Navy has now been downing missiles from the in the Red Sea. 
in regard to attacks on the ships, which I still wonder how much of this is in fact actually happening. I'm not disputing that the Yemeni, the Houthis around Sarali movement have these capabilities. I just know that they're very, it's very easy for them to lie about this kind of stuff. And then the Navy has sunk three Houthi boats in the sea. You know, th- this is, this is going to escalate, I think, from a lot of different angles. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, uh, Yemen's Ansarallah, uh, they released a statement on this and that they said that the American government bears the repercussions for this. Um, they killed 10 uh, Yemeni uh, naval soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the, this, the threat has been very clear from Ansarallah. Uh, they mm-hmm. said, we're going to stop all Israeli shipping. All shipping going to the port of Ilat is, is done. It's over. Forget about it. If you're coming uh, through you're risking your ship getting hit at the end of the day. So you're risking your life. You can either go the other route, you can go around the entirety of the continent of Africa and through into the Mediterranean, Mm -hmm. uh, but you're not coming through here. You're not coming. And they'll hit them. And they still hit the ship as well. The the fact that the United States bombed all of these uh, Yemeni forces and killed 10 people in the defense of who? And with what UN Security Council resolution to back them militarizing this area of the world? So it's illegal, number one. Number two, did the American people ask for this? Did the American Congress approve of this? Was there any approval of this? Or did they just throw a bunch of ships in there, try and get this coalition, this multinational coalition, which is just a bunch of European countries? And then Bahrain said, yeah, yeah, sure, we'll join. Bahrain is negligible in, in terms of its naval capabilities. It might send a few of its princes to help block the sea there because they're they all what weigh at least 600 700 pounds so maybe they're gonna like help you know uh like they can put them in the ocean as a buoy or something um but it's it's basically a european coalition to what allow more goods to come in to the israelis to to allow them to continue their genocide normally the yemenis have been very open about this let the aid into gaza if you let the aid just go in to the people who are starving to death there now, we'll let the boats go through. Right. Go ahead. Let the aid in. The United States says, no, we're going to send our Navy there, which risks a war because the Yemenis can blow those boats out the water. Those aircraft carriers, they're not going to exist if they want to go to war. If they want to strike Yemeni territory and go to war with Ansar Allah, they'll lose all of it. It's done. Then what do they do? Looking like idiots with a bunch with however many soldiers are there uh, from their Navy on those uh, aircraft carriers and those boats. When they're at the bottom of the ocean or they're floating in the water, then what? Are you going to use nuclear weapons? Because invading it, well, we've seen how that's that's gone in the war on Yemen uh, so far. It's not going to make a difference throwing U.S. troops into another forever war. They're not going to win that war. I, I agree. I agree. Well, so, but here, there's a legal legal issue here, though, that I think is really important. In trying to be, be objective about this is that technically, if you're striking now, I mean, there's a whole issue to this, or whether or not Israel's utilizing c- civilian ships to remove, which we know all these, you know, I mean, they always accuse their adversaries of it, but I think they all do it during times of war. I think it's just a tactic, and so that would mean that if they were, then that would make it a military target. But if they are in fact just targeting anything Israel related. That's technically a crime if it's not milit- in the context of the military engagement, right? So I think this gets really difficult because like with Hamas, for example, saying that, and we'll get into this next in regard to October 7th, that, well, you know, we see all of them as legal targets because it's all part of this occupation. They brought them. There's an argument be made there. But my point is, you know, hard line for civilians. You just can't cross that line. You have to maintain that if you want any kind of, you know, 
accountability or respectability. And, and so now when that's happening, I think that there's a line being crossed there. And I, but I, I can understand why that gets pushed because Israel's crossing lines all over the place. But you see, you see what I'm saying? It's interesting. And then in regard to the, well, just I wanted to point out that there was a ship that was literally flying like, we're not Israel. Like, we're not, like, literally in the little tag they type in, it said something like IOC, like, not Israel associated. I thought it was funny because they're just clearly getting the message. And so it's working also, is the point. So, any thoughts on that in regard to the legalities? Well, we can talk about legalities all day long. Uh, what mm -hmm. they're doing, sure, whatever. Like we could say that it's uh, illegal, but we live in a world where there's no such thing as legal or illegal anymore. That the International mm -hmm. Criminal Court doesn't matter. International law doesn't matter. It doesn't make an impact because they can carry out a genocide in Gaza. And by the way, th the people of Yemen know what it's like to be blockaded, by the way, Absolutely. because the blockade on Yemen is illegal as well. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to blockade Yemen and starve the people to death to the tune of 400,000 people, in the country and you're going to bomb them into the ground and you're going to deprive them of their rights and you're going to steal their resources. And then when they choose to fight back in defense of another people who have been starved to death, who are being blockaded, who all these war crimes are being committed. Now, Yemen, what it's doing, oh, it's illegal under international law uh, to stop shipping coming into a certain area. I think they could make their legal arguments. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not qualified mm -hmm. to talk about uh, how legal whatever is, but I can talk morally. What's uh, what's more moral if if the law is not being respected, mm -hmm. and also you can you can tell somebody, for instance, it can be a criminal with a gun running down the road and shooting at uh, grandmothers, and you can go, hey, that's illegal, and he just keeps shooting people. Or do you grab your weapon and you kill him mm -hmm. to stop him from killing more people? Now, well, they're both deaths, aren't they? They're both killing, but at the end of the day understandable why you've taken out the shooter. So that's what they're doing. They're doing whatever they can to support a people who are being subjected to genocide, uh, an attempted ethnic cleansing, a really actually an ethnic cleansing because the majority Absolutely. of them have already been pushed for their from their homes and her being starved to death. So, and they've been occupied. And this is the thing they talk about international law and they talk about legality. Where is the legality? We live in a world of the powerful and the powerless. And that's what right. the United States government has done. It's undermined every international institution with this. It doesn't even go to its own Congress anymore to order strikes on foreign right. territory, to militarize areas of the world, which it wants to militarize, uh, to uh, send bombs to a country which actively is being accused of committing genocide. The genocide convention is, uh, has been triggered right. against it. And Blinken, who goes over there and says, I come to Israel as, as a Jew, he says. So he comes there as a Jew, not as an American official, right. and goes, I'm openly in solidarity with everything you're doing. That's basically what that meant. That's what he meant. I'm here with you. I'm not, I'm not going to be balanced on this. And then he goes, I'm going to send uh, hundreds of millions in weapons so you can continue to kill children. So what the Yemen's doing morally is fully correct and justified, 100%. Now, if there's some legal implications, oh, well, they stopped some boats going to the Israeli side. The Israelis are not starving because of this. The Israelis economically are suffering. But at the end of the day, you're living on occupied territory. You've got an army which is committing a genocide. I'm sorry. Yeah, there should be a blockade from all angles until you stop a genocide. Yeah, if that's what it's going to take to stop a genocide, morally, I'm speaking, mm -hmm. morally, I'm speaking, blockade them from all angles, Mediterranean as well. Nothing comes in, nothing. Can, if you're going to starve Gaza, you starve until you stop it as well. 
Right. Because there's right. no, this is the problem. If, if the law, I would be fully for the law and all the legal arguments. I would, I would say, yes, stop doing that. If the law was respected, but nobody respects the law. That's the problem. Right. The law right. is just a bunch of writing on a piece of paper and it only applies to powerless people who have nothing, uh, no way to, uh, to fight back. Yeah. Everything you said is completely true, man. And, and, and quite frankly, I agree with everything you're saying, but the, the hard line here, and, th and this is really a conversation for the day that I think we should even have like a really good in depth. Cause this is, it's, it's honestly, I don't even know. It's, it's almost impossible to make a decision here because you're at a point where like, I guess the obvious logical point trying to remove emotion from it would be that even though they're not respecting the law or whatever kind of moral even guidance that we use to kind of influence the law, it's not being acknowledged or even followed by them. Then if we, if the point that would be that if we don't either, then it just becomes the same point that then just becomes this fulfilling same cycle of, you know, like, I guess the argument would be to act in a way that is trying to better that situation. Like, and again, I'm from like a not an unemotional point, but then coming from the other side of it, like you just can't be in a position living in your air conditioned home and everything is fine, you know, and then acting like these people who have been murdered and raped and pillaged and suppressed, you know, their entire existence and act like they, like it's not justified to act in response to that. Cause I mean, technically legally it is justified, but this is where you get into the point of what I was getting to about the, and not just the holding the ships, but actually targeting the ships with missiles. If again, that is actually what happened. That's more what I was getting at because I think mm -hmm. technically it is a crime and Again, if I, I if you watch it happening, it's kind of hard not to say, well, I completely get why they're doing this. They have been starved and suppressed by these people. So it's even justified since they're not following the law. But my again, it's just it's you get where I'm coming from. It becomes this impossible situation where if we're trying to get away from this cycle, doing the same thing they do in response is almost a guarantee that that won't end unless you have the hopes that the person that is doing so will you know, immediately stop doing all those things once this passes, which is the hope, right? I mean, I get, it's just an interesting thing, you know? I mean, since I, I responded, go ahead if you want to say anything in response to that, but it's just such a, a complicated situation. And I think we always have to err on the side of the people that are suppressed, have no voice, that are being manipulated, you know? Also, this is Yemeni territory and Yemeni waters as well. That's another thing. And yeah. it's their waterways in their area of the world. So uh, another thing is if you send American, uh, the ones who've been killing people, by the way, in the area are not the Yemenis. They haven't been killing people. Mm -hmm. And if you fire ammunition into a ship, it, you, you can do it in such a way where you're not going to kill people, but you're going to stop that ship from moving. Mm -hmm. um, and they've said it, you're not coming through here. We've locked it down. Now, blockading an area right? The full legal implications of whatever a blockade is. But if you're doing it during the course of a war, and it's not starving a civilian population, it's economically damaging them and preventing certain goods from coming to them and aiding them and abetting their war crimes. If you're doing that, you can make your legal arguments. Again, I'm not an international lawyer, so I'm not going to make that. I'm not making the legal cases here. I'm making the moral case. Have the Yemenis been killing innocent civilians on those ships? Not that no, I can tell. Yeah. they haven't been. Who's been killing people? The United States military just killed 10 people. So and in a territory which is not their own. So mm -hmm. in terms of what Yemen's doing morally, I think it's completely correct. I don't think there's any problem with it personally. That's how I see it. I don't see there's any problem with it. Legally, I'm not an international lawyer. I'm not going to mm -hmm. try and to make any case any way or the other. I don't know. I, I can't tell you what is and isn't legal. What you're saying, for instance, 
I can fully accept that that's going to be interpreted as a crime. If there's a case you can make uh, that, you know, stopping ships from coming to a country, um, you know, and, and enforcing a blockade or uh, administering sanctions to a country, for instance, can be legal in, in certain contexts to prevent a, a certain regime from committing war crimes. For instance, the US and the EU would try and justify their sanctions on numerous countries around the world because they say uh, Bashar al-Assad is a war criminal or X right. is a war criminal or whatever. Um, and again, it doesn't make it right because we know that they're not sanctioning the leaders, we're san- they're sanctioning the people. But in this case, the Israelis are not starving. Like the right. Israelis, you know, they might be suffering economically. People might lose their businesses. Uh, but you made the choice, the active choice to be in an apartheid regime and support the apartheid regime, uh, which is uh, now committing a genocide and attempting to ethnically cleanse the people. And these are the people that voted in their representatives, which are a bunch of psychopaths mm-hmm. who want to commit a genocide. So here's the thing. Like when we're getting into the legal thing, I can say 100 percent. I don't know with le- legality and I. I could try and build cases hypothetically, but I don't know because I'm not an international lawyer. However, morally, the position of the Yemenis, the only ones in the entire region or in the entire world that has a state apparatus, um, which has actually done anything to help mm-hmm. the, to stop the genocide, other than you can argue South Africa, really. Yeah. And maybe Iran playing a certain role there. Uh, but that's it. Yeah. Well, so it, two things are important. And then again, I, I think we should, you know, we definitely should talk about this more, but you know, I, just to be clear, like, well, I mean, first of all, I think what, what's difficult about that is the argument of, you know, voting them in and so on. It's the same argument being thrown at Palestinians to argue that, well, they voted in Hamas and therefore we can kill them. You know, it's, it's just difficult because not everybody there voted, but you know, again, to the main point though, let's just put it like this from a personal perspective. If I was in that position, you're damn right. I would be acting that way. Like, let's just be very clear about that. Like that's, I, from a moral perspective, I absolutely believe that if I was in that position, if my family was being killed and murdered, I mean, you're you're damn right. I would rise up and fight back 100 mm-hmm. percent that just trying to be an objective, you know, discussing from this perspective. It's it's really difficult not to bring in those points and see it. But, yeah, I mean, I think we're watching the abuse of exactly what we're doing here. Right. That the people in these leadership positions, they don't care about the things we're talking about. They don't care about the human rights or the legalities or the international law. And yet here we are trying to decide this and discuss it and try to because we care about these things. Right. And that that's the main point for me is that the people pushing from this angle, this position, I think, are striving to achieve something that has nothing to do with occupation or land theft. It's about self-determination. Right. I mean, and that's what we'll get to the the op-ed from Harvard point from a Jewish leader making the same point, you know, but yeah, I, I think that's important. And I'm glad you made that, that statement though, because from a moral perspective, I think it is very clear as well. The, the one thing that I'd add to this is when mm-hmm. I talk about the Israelis electing their leaders, and by the way, the Palestinians haven't had an election since 2006, and that's because of the Palestinian right. authority, the United States, um, and the Israelis as well. Um, but they haven't had an election, so we don't know who they've elected. Number two, because uh, the Israelis say, hey, they elected Hamas, so we can kill all of them. Um, Which is justified, obviously. Ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. what, I'm saying, what I'm saying is not, okay, Israel, they elected, these Israelis elected these fascistic, nutjob, war criminal psychopaths who are a bunch of narcissistic killers who want to, basically from every single major party there, want to mass murder and ethnically cleanse Palestinians from every major party. Mm-hmm. All of them think that way. These are all the major parties there, with the exception of a small, small number of other parties in their Knesset. All of them think this way. Okay. My point is not that they should be killed for that, 
But if they're going to lose business because of that, because they live inside this genocidal entity and they elect these leaders and their business in Elat is going to be damaged because and they voted for this and they support this and they support the war and their business is going to be damaged. Again, not a legal mm-hmm. point, a moral point. Yeah, I'm sorry you're going to lose some business, bro. Like, right. that's the way yeah. I look at it. Not that they yeah. should be killed for that. Of course. That doesn't course. qualify you for being murdered because you voted in, even you voted in the most fascist, racist government that the world has seen at this point, right mm-hmm. now on Earth, yeah. today. today. Um, it, it doesn't qualify you for being murdered morally. I wouldn't make that argument. But if you're going to lose some business, I mean, yeah, like... Yeah, that's well, the point I was making, by the way. Oh, 100%. I, that was clear. I don't think anybody took you as suggesting people should be murdered. I don't think your, your work is clear on your, your opposition to things like that. But, you know, I, I think what is it, the, the, the direction of the settlement, basically the larger point is that the settle, the idea that this is an occupation versus the other side, you know, that, that changes the dynamic, obviously. And you, you could point out too, and I think it's important to note, there's a lot of people, uh, Jews and otherwise in Israel that are actively advocating the opposite of what those groups are. But you're right. It's, it's the majority for sure in regard to the leadership and everything we're talking about. But I, I think that the fact that this is an illegal occupation, which means then Israel is bringing in civilians into what even they argue is an ongoing war. Ever. I mean, then there, there's a responsibility there. These, and these are all important dynamics to all this, including the fact that Israel funded Hamas, which then caused the problem. You know, you can bring all this around and all these things are very important. So I guess that, you know, to end on that segment, it's just interesting that, you know, the point again is that we seem to care about these things, about whether or not we're acting in accordance with the law or human rights or, you know, and the reality is these the leaders or rulers only use those things to manipulate people. And I think that's at least my opinion. I think that's very clear. And and the other thing that I'd add uh, just shortly Mm -hmm. is that you can't expect occupied and oppressed people and armed groups which are formed to defend them to respect laws that you don't respect, to fight in a more moral way than the states which are supposed to be bound by something more moral and they're supposed to be held to a higher standard. Uh, So, yeah, you can't go out to the people who are subjected to genocide and have been murdered and besieged and starved and deprived of all human rights and then go hey but hey we have this piece of paper here that we wrote back in the 40s and and that says that if you want to fire a rocket you got to go into an open field where we can target and kill you straight away so you have no resistance so your only legal resistance is to go into an area where we can kill you with precision weapons oh what we can't do oh oh we lost you uh, no, you can't do that because oh, yeah. um, you you don't have precision weapons. You don't have modern guided munitions. So it's an in, indiscriminate weapon. We drop indiscriminate weapons. That's fine. But if you do it, that's a war crime. And we're going to write it in our stupid human rights reports about how Hamas committed a war crime. Okay, give us precision guided missiles so we can go fight. No, 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 no. You can't have that because you're terrorists. So right. and it's just every single time, no matter which way you try and argue it, it's just right. they can't win. And there's also always some pseudo legal jargon which is thrown at them to say to justify why they're the worst people on earth and why Israel is moral and the United States government is moral somehow. And don't forget, they just argued, and I'm at the point they keep trying to make with them, and they make these cases that they targeted the Al-Aqsa Mosque with their rockets, yet make the argument that they're indiscriminate because they're not guidance, and that's why they're a war crime. You know, this is the, the obvious dishonesty from the statement. One last question for you actually because maybe you maybe you know this in more the legality side of it 
in the context of this, so let's just take exactly like we're talking about, but take two, you could take two different entities if that makes it easier. And you have an, the illegal occupier, some the obvious one that is in the, in the wrong in the sense of the legal, the legal, illegal occupation. And they begin committing crimes against the occupier occupied. And that's clear. So those are crimes post-war. Let's just pretend we're in a world where they'd be accountable for those things, a world that we would like to be in. But then in the process, before it's over, you have the occupied in response to that, which again, for those that don't remember this, they have a legal right to armed rebellion, then do commit crimes. Let's say they deliberately then target a hospital or civilians in that process of that. What do you, it, it, in, once that's done, is there some kind of a legal argument for why that's not a crime because they were committing crimes or the point would be, do you think they should all be held accountable? It would just be that the occupiers far more accountable and far more, you know, potential crimes to be levied at them. How do you see that? I think there's two sides of it. The legal side of it, I know from interviewing international lawyers on the topic, and I interviewed an international, a prominent international lawyer on um, the issue of uh, the prisoners, for instance, the Israelis who were taken. Yeah. And I asked the question, is it justified in that position for Hamas if they took them for this reason? Um, we, and he said, I can't say the reasons uh, that they were taken, etc. So I can't make a, a legal um you know, statement on that. I can't say whether it's legal or not or whatever. But what he did say is like, if you if you go and you take, let's say, an Israeli woman who's uh, 21 years old, okay, and you want to trade her for a Palestinian woman or five Palestinian women who are 21 years old, which they're holding, for instance, even though you could understand why that's the case, mm-hmm. and morally you could make an argument, right? You could go, okay, yeah, they're trying to trade them, you could try and make that justification. Still, that's a crime under international law because right, right. you've, you've taken somebody against their will uh, yeah. and held them hostage. So the same thing with any war crime. Um, I know there's degrees of war crimes. For instance, there there is like the most egregious ones, which are under genocide, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the most uh, egregious violations of international law. Um, and there's different levels of violations of international law, of course. Um, and that's on human rights organizations and uh, the United Nations. And then, of course, uh, the likes of the International Court of Justice and uh, the International Criminal Court, if they were going to make uh, have rulings to decide what constitutes what. Uh, but what I would say is, um, on, based upon my understanding, a war crime is a war crime at the end of the day, no matter what context it's committed in, mm-hmm. according to the law. Now, if you're going to talk about the right of the occupied to respond whilst they're still being killed, I think very easily there's a moral responsibility. Um, and then what that crosses over to, and then how is that justified? Um, because of course the, the occupied have under the fourth Geneva conventions, the right to armed resistance, but then what you have, because that's not the only uh, basis for making an argument in international law. Um, so then you have others who could come in and make a legal case that firing the rockets, uh, there that's a, a war crime because they're not guided munitions. Um, and that shooting the Israelis across this territory or whatever, these Israelis died in this circumstance, that's not legitimate. And that's a violation of international law. Um, and even when they're targeting soldiers with those rockets and munitions, because they're unguided, 
they can make the arguments that they're illegal. And that, I think, is nonsense. And I think it's just as nonsense as under international law, a nuclear weapon is not banned, but an explosive bullet is banned. Um, so there's holes in the law. It doesn't make any sense. Like, yeah. I agree. An explosive bullet shooting it at somebody, it's overkill. You shouldn't be able to use an explosive bullet to shoot somebody. But you're going to say that's illegal and a nuclear bomb is not illegal. Yeah, it doesn't make I mean, sense. It makes no sense. Yeah. And, and we can use our brains to you know make sense of things. So I think when we're analyzing, there has to be a mixture of both. Absolutely. Um, acknowledge what the law is. Um, but then I, I believe that in this situation, since there is a genocide ongoing, I believe that we should give our input and use our brains and go, wait, that doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. That That is not right. And, and it doesn't mean that you have to agree with every single action committed by the Palestinian armed groups. If right. you look throughout history, whether in Algeria, South Africa, go back to the Haitian Revolution, whatever you want, people who are fighting against oppression, you're not going to agree with every single action that was taken. In the Haitian Revolution, there was an order given um, to kill all whites. That's what they gave. That's an order. Mm-hmm. They didn't actually kill everyone, but the order was given. Now, that's not a very nice order, but there's some context to that order. And there's a long history of repression and slavery um, and mass murder, which came before that, which is why we understand the Haitian Revolution in its current context. Um, And we don't have to agree with everything that was done by the side that was resisting. That's not and go. That was moral. That was fine. Because at the end of the day, we're not in that position of a people who are enslaved or subjected to genocide. Right. So well, I think that the better. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. I was like the better point for, for from an American audience would be simply to point at any American U.S. government war. Right. And this is the point I made about, like, for instance, when on October 7th, you know, the the legally protected act of arms of arm resistance into what were illegal settlements which was the where they went into and and then in, that was legal right anything on military targets including taking military targets but on the civilian engagement which they admitted to doing that i argue those were still crimes right so there there is that overlap in a us war let's just take iraq which is or syria which are rife with human rights violations war crimes you know border i mean you could get into borderline genocide allegations with what we know happened in places like raqqa right so my point is, you can clearly prove that American soldiers raped, murdered, stole, in some cases were held accountable. Many, many, many others were not. So does that then invalidate in the mind of an American everything that stood for? And maybe it should, but it doesn't for the vast majority of people. So that's the only real argument there is that if you're going to make this standard, then it better be applied equally to everything. Mm-hmm. Clearly, you have people who are being oppressed in far, far, far more egregious ways than most things we even know about. And so that's... And, if you're going to pretend that was justified in the invasion of Iraq or whatever you want to talk about, then so too would that be, right? My point is I'm just trying to bring this to the most static, like, you know, objective, even though I can, from a moral perspective, be like, I would do the same and I agree with you, that we have to say, yes, that was a crime. Like, if we're trying to keep, you know, I think only because, and this is where I get into the point of, like, irritating objectivity, is because they're so obviously not. You know, all these leaders and rulers are actively doing the opposite. So I think it behooves us to show what we could do. You know what I mean? But to end with that, I do agree with you. I really do. And I think that it's obvious what they're doing is justified in most every act that they're taking. Now, we I know we have limited time. Let me know if we're you know getting to the end. I had a few other things we wanted to get into. I, I feel like I want your thoughts in general, I guess, briefly on October 7th in general. 
you know, because we've talked about a lot of things and we can get into like, I, I, and by the way, for the audience, I mean, Robert talked about this. I plan on making this a routine thing with Robert, especially because of what's going on, but just because I think his work is fantastic. So I will try and do this periodically, have him back on to talk about these things. So we can go deeper on this one in particular. But as Megatron simply says, the truth must be told. And this is coming from an Israeli analyst, uh, Amos Harrell, saying that the Israel entered a difficult strategic trap after October 7th. And it's still unclear how they're going to get out of that trap. And the whole point arguably means that this was something that they were manipulated into. But I'm not sure if I even agree with that. Like, I know there's so much evidence about involvement or rather the willful ignorance of what was building. And, you know, so what's your general thought on what happened there on October 7th? I I think the Israelis suffered a massive strategic blow. And that's because of a lot of incompetence. Personally, that's Mm -hmm. that's what I see it as. A lot of people have made arguments to the contrary. Um, I don't think they hold up. I think there's a lot of incompetence which went on. And then they tried to wrestle it back by saying, we knew in a year in advance and we have a plan that we've had for two years on how to invade Gaza. And we've had, uh, and they come up with a bunch of different things. Uh, definitely people had knowledge of it, but I think mm-hmm. they ignored that. Um, and I can, I can say from anecdotal, uh, this is just anecdotally, I know people from Gaza who've crossed over, for instance, um, that fence and gone to go work, for instance. I know as well a Scottish friend of mine from the other side of that fence that waltzed around it for half an hour before being surrounded by Israeli commandos. Um, so, um, you know, it, they're not as like this whole thing about how advanced they are and how wonderful they are and how um, how powerful the Israelis are. Um, you know, at the end of the day, they're very, very arrogant mm-hmm. um, and very, very racist. Mm-hmm. And they didn't think that the Palestinians would have the capabilities to do something or that they would have, uh, quite frankly, for no uh, better word to use, the bulls to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it happened, regardless of what we want to argue uh, led up to that and who was involved or whatever, um, in my opinion, what happened is that this was a massive military blow to the Israelis. They lost around 400 soldiers, roughly. When the uh, just on the seventh, sorry, you, you meant just on the seventh they lost four hundred. Just on the seventh, just on the seventh, around four hundred Israeli soldiers, roughly, just under that. And then if you add in the police, the armed guards, uh, the security forces, the off-duty IDF soldiers who picked up their weapons and others who came with their guns, uh, then you're just over four hundred. Um, uh, is the statistic that we're given. And they overran all Israeli military positions along uh, the separation fence. Um, And they pushed deep and they went into command and control uh, centers. Um, They took out the command and control in the uh, the south. Um, And the Israelis were completely embarrassed, completely embarrassed. Mm -hmm. And then what the evidence shows is that the Israelis came in basically with their helicopters, um and their tanks and fired indiscriminately um and they engaged in firefights with palestinian fighters um now we don't have time to get into absolutely everything here um but a lot of different palestinian groups crossed it wasn't just hamas um and then as well civilians well we say civilians but people civilians came and then there were civilians who brought guns Hmm. who came i can't say who killed who in every situation I don't know. There seems to be uh, significant evidence that a lot of Israeli non-combatants were killed. How many exactly as well, because these numbers, they start changing. The reason why I doubt that is because there's some people that are included in the civilian statistic 
but they carried firearms and there's some cases of those. Right. Um, to say that that's the overwhelming majority of that statistic is uh, would be disingenuous. Um, so we at least know around just under 700, I think they say, um, uh, were uh, killed, uh, unarmed Israelis. Um, and so that situation, who killed who, how many were killed by each side, I can't say, but the Israelis killed a significant amount of their own civilians. And right. this is an embarrassment for them as well. So the Israelis having been faced with this military raid, which turned into something a lot more bloody, having been faced with this situation, what they began to do is cook up all this propaganda to make themselves a victim, to justify mm-hmm. what was going to come next. And Hamas, they know the Israelis. Whenever anything is done against the Israelis, the repercussions, every single time, the Israelis go for blood. Mm-hmm. They always want blood. They always want vengeance. And they need to spill a lot of blood to make them feel good about themselves. And they knew this. Hamas knew this when they were planning this. And so they knew the Israelis were going to come in. Did they know they were going to come in that hard and that they would shut off all the water and all the food and all of the electricity for the people of Gaza and they would do what they're doing right now? I don't know if uh, exactly if Hamas knew that they would be this monstrous because they've mm-hmm. never experienced something this monstrous. Uh, I think the world hasn't really experienced. This is very unique what yeah. has been done. Like Because we can look at death tolls and we go, yeah, we can compare this death toll to how many people were killed by the British in the Mau Mau revolt in this period of time. But like, you know, we can go back and do those sort of comparisons to whatever we want. Uh, But really, in terms of the tonnage of bombs, the blocking of aid, the size of the Gaza Strip, the population, uh, it's a unique crime in history. And Um, the level of dehumanization is quite unprecedented, in my opinion. Like you always see this level, but it's just overwhelming how in your face it is. And, and and the worst part for me is how then you have a lot of people in positions of authority telling you not just that it's okay, but it's the right thing. Like it's mm-hmm. so, I think that's what's jarred so many people free from the illusion is they just can't rectify that. Yeah. And, uh, and this is the thing as well. Like uh, here, when you're looking at uh, what's going on, the Israelis have basically said that all of the Palestinians in Gaza they're all terrorists. They're all Hamas. They're all connected to Hamas. If they're not connected to Hamas and they're not Hamas, then they're Hamas human shields. And if they're not Hamas human shields, then they were an unfortunate casualty of war. And if they didn't bomb themselves, then we bombed them accidentally with a munition that we weren't supposed to drop. But we really did because there was maybe some guy there. And just that there's a million excuses for everything. But ultimately, the Israeli society agrees. Palestinians are human animals and we should just murder them all in gaza all the people in gaza should die on average the israelis agree with what they're doing this is the thing all the polls suggest that not only do the israelis agree the majority of the israeli people agree this is how brainwashed they are the majority agree they want more they don't think they've been tough enough and here's an interesting dynamic to this, and I, I agree with you, unfortunately. Abby Martin's work has made this clear in the past, right, going through the you know, the civilian locations and just asking for opinions, and it's very clear. But at the same point they make on that is how clearly, you know, the same way Americans are radicalized for war from their government, it's the same kind of game. But what's interesting in a macabre way is that because of what they have done, well, two things, because of the fact that there are Israelis in Gaza – and then the overwhelming onslaught, knowing they're there, which they've clearly provably now killed their own people more than once with bombings and shootings in Gaza, that has caused the Israeli population to suddenly 
call for a ceasefire, right? But as I keep making the point, most of them aren't saying don't go back to kill, go back and finish what you're doing in Gaza, but first get our people home. And it started this interesting schism between the conversation where they're going, no, screw you, stop what you're doing. We want our families back. And I think the Israeli government, Netanyahu predominantly expected them to go wholeheartedly along with it. And it's, I don't think they expected the pushback. And I, in every possible way, it seems they've broken the, you know, illusion or the, the hold they had over people on the power of the propaganda. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. Would you agree with that? It's interesting because what you're seeing is Netanyahu is not popular anymore, by the way. His approval yeah. rating is in the floor. Um, and that's because he's not dealing with this properly. But the only the problem is no other leadership would have dealt with it in any other way. They all would have done the same thing. I can guarantee you how, you know, how, uh, you know, harsh this policy or that would have been. I can't say. But right now you have uh, Benny Gantz, who's of the opposition, who's in that war government, who thinks the same thing. So mm-hmm. if if. If uh, there's going to be an election tomorrow, Benny Gantz would be prime minister, according to all the polls. <laughs> Benny Gantz is in this war government who is leading this genocide. So uh, that's the reality there. But having said that, the Israelis have achieved absolutely nothing militarily in Gaza. Nothing. They haven't destroyed a decent portion of the tunnel system. They haven't killed uh, anyone in the senior military leadership of Hamas. They've taken some people in the Politburo in their homes at the start, um, but that doesn't mean anything really militarily. They haven't done any damage on Hamas. Hamas is actually more popular than ever. Not only that, Hamas has inflicted the worst military defeat on Israel that's ever happened, mm-hmm. and it continues to get worse and worse and worse. Abu Abaydah, the spokesperson for the Qassam uh, Brigades, uh, the armed wing of Hamas, came out the other day and he said, we've hit over 825 Israeli military vehicles, either partially or fully destroying them. Uh, just to give you, that's not the only organization. There's about 12. There's more than a dozen Palestinian armed groups there. Hamas is the most powerful. Do you think the that's accurate? I think according to what we've seen, and also the Israelis were following up with their own statistics at the start, and then they mm-hmm. just stopped announcing them. Mm-hmm. So at the start, the Hamas statistics were on point. Mm-hmm. They were, they were, they were historically very- they have been right. I mean, even the Guardian and AP have pointed that out. Historically, it almost ends up pretty close to what Israel ultimately ends up saying. Uh, there's a difference there because I think they're talking about the uh, the health ministry. And oh, that's you're an right. interesting thing with the health yeah. ministry because the health ministry, yes, there is Hamas has control of the civil administration because mm-hmm. Hamas it has an armed wing. Hamas does work in civil society. Hamas uh, is a governing force, right? It's a political party. Uh, people just think oh, it's a terrorist organization, whatever. Um, but it has a civil administration there and international organizations which have to interact with it because it's the governing force there. And the Gaza Health Ministry is run by doctors. It's not run by like, mm-hmm. you know, a Hamas commander with a kufia on his face and a, an AK-47 who just like starts announcing statistics. No, like this is hospitals that are giving statistics and collecting the data. And then you have a doctor who is heading up the health ministry, mm-hmm. who is fully qualified for his position and is respected internationally and has worked with international organizations and for international organizations in the past, worked outside the country in the past, and is a professional who is coming up with this statistic and handing it and has always been proven pretty much correct on the statistics that they give the Gaza health ministry. And also the Gaza health ministry, by the way, their statistics, they get checked in Ramallah as well. They get checked over in Ramallah. People don't know this before those press reports come out, unless it's just uh, the uh, spokesperson in Gaza. He might make a statement by himself, for instance. Mm-hmm. But the reports that they put out, 
they're checked in, in, in Ramallah in the West Bank where the Palestinian Authority is there, the Palestinian Health Ministry, because it's connected to it. Um, so people don't know that. But in terms of what's going on on the ground in Gaza, in terms of uh, the military defeat, um, Yahya Sinwar, who's the head of Hamas in Gaza, he uh, wrote a letter to the senior leadership of Hamas outside. And he said that we've directly hit 5,000 Israeli soldiers, a third of whom have been killed. That's what he hmm. says. So that would put it roughly around 1,666 soldiers killed. Wow. There's no way to confirm that. But the one thing is that we've seen the, the Israelis have not announced a lot of their deaths, which have been recorded on camera, by the way. Right. And every day we see more videos of Hamas, Islamic Jihad, uh, Abu Ali Mustafa brigades, all the d- different armed groups hitting tank after tank after tank after tank after tank and blowing these things up and mm-hmm. burning uh, military bulldozers and hitting troop formations and detonating entire buildings on top of troops and ambushing them. Like every single day, we're talking about multiple videos coming out of the military actions that are committed. So for Israel to say, they say 172, I think, soldiers have been killed since the ground incursion. I don't believe that. And the casualties, um, which they're reporting on in general, Haaretz started doing uh, a dive into that. And they went to the hospitals and they realized that in every single hospital, they've got a military sensor there. Anything that those hospitals say or report or write down, that's being monitored by the military. So they can't report anything. And there's a military sensor as well, which is applied on Israeli media. So how accurate the Israeli statistics are, we've seen that the Israelis have uh, delayed the announcing of of, uh, dead soldiers by around a month. In, in one case, at least one case, a month it took them. So um, there's a there's a lot of uh, indication that the the death toll is higher, that the injuries are higher. Um, and even if you go by the Israeli official death toll, this is like the worst defeat mm-hmm. ever inflicted by a bunch of armed groups in a besieged territory who've manufactured their weapons locally and lured, like this Israeli analyst said, they've been lured into a trap because. Right. Hamas knew them. They knew them better than themselves. They knew these are genocidal maniacs. They're not going to come and go to the United Nations and talk about, yeah, like, come sit with sit with the, uh, at the table with us or else we're going to go to the UN Security Council and get a resolution to invade your ass. No, no, no. They weren't about to do things legally. They're right. about to go in and drop as much tonnage and, and aim for damage and to starve the civilian population and to demonize every single Palestinian and to mass murder and kill. That's who these people are. They're right. very predictable. They're racist, narcissistic psychopaths. And they come in and they knew. So Hamas lured them in. Come in. Come. You've destroyed all the buildings. This is the perfect environment for us to kill you. And they've, they've come in with their military. And Hamas, you want to look at the statistics of how many Hamas uh, have killed in terms of Israeli civilians to soldiers? Uh, since October 7, even including October 7, uh, if you look at hell of a lot better than the Israelis. The Israelis, they're out there killing 30,000. They say, oh, we might have got anywhere between somewhere around 1,500 to 5,000 Hamas. Hamas. Um, There's no proof for this. And the one video they just put out, which proved that they killed a Hamas member, became like this this, uh, man, this Hamas fighter, became immortalized because everyone saw him in the midst of battle after being wounded, saying his last words and going that. into the prayer position. Mm-hmm. So he ended up looking epic. Mm-hmm. And that was supposed to be the, the big propaganda victory. And it's the only footage that they presented 
of them which, actually killing someone who's Hamas. Yeah. Which to me shows you that they're, I mean, they would have been parading these around in front of us if there was more evidence to it. It's, it shows you very clearly. Now, I, I do know you, you have said you had to be out of here at a certain time, so make sure you watch your clock. We're about seven minutes past. I don't know if you have an interview or not, but I wanted to end adding these, <clears throat> what you just pointed out. Emphasis on damage, not accuracy, is what they said on October 10th. I just think that's hilarious that we can talk about this as if we're debating it, and they literally state this on October 10th, what their main point was, or the important 972 magazine article about a mass assassination factory and this was about the uh, habsara uh you know the gospels what it translates to in regard to their ai programs they're using to bomb just to back up what you were saying that's exactly what you were discussing it's very it's self-evident at this point now i i know you were you can hang out if you got more time i'm going to go through a few more points but i'm going to go and go through them if you'd like to drop off or you can hang around uh you're welcome to stay i don't, I don't know how much time you got left brother but uh I wanted your final thoughts, if that, if you do have to go, on the uh, genocide convention point. Where do you think that's going to go, and you know, is that even going to change anything? I would like to believe that it would go somewhere and that this would be a quick process, um, but logic suggests that it won't prevent what's going on right now. Um, and, and at the end of the day, um, it would be great to see all of these war criminals actually be tried um, and Israel suffer. Um, and one of the results of this is Israel could be temporarily suspended from uh, the UN uh, General Assembly. Hmm. Uh, at least that's what I've been told. Um, and so I'd like to see that happen as a repercussion. And maybe that would restore at least my faith mm-hmm. in international law. Because I, I think anyone looking objectively right now can see that we live in a world of the powerful and the powerless. And uh, yeah, unless you have the better weapons and more funding, there's there's no real way of getting any justice. You have to get strong. You have to get weapons. You have to fight back. Um, and, and that's what they're telling the world, basically, through what they're doing right now. So. And that's the United States, because I believe this is the U.S. government's war. I don't like Israel's dropping the bombs, but the United States can call this off in five seconds if it wants to. Right. But it doesn't. So the U.S. government, in my opinion, is just Joe Biden and Antony Blinken are just as complicit, in my opinion, um, as Yoav Gallant and uh, Benny Gantz and Benjamin Netanyahu. I don't think we should treat them differently, uh, but unfortunately, we're never going to see them brought to justice. And the way that the U.S. government is, is acting right now, it suggests that they'll shield the Israelis from anything, mm-hmm. from anything. Netanyahu, like, uh, you know, he could do whatever he wants. Like, he could literally line up a bunch of Palestinian children and, like, run up to them with knives and just start stabbing them on live television And then he could sit back down in front of you, talk about peace and democracy and how everyone's an anti-Semite and uh, is committing blood libel by uh, somehow calling out what he just did. And the United States would go, I think it was actually Islamic Jihad, which guided, uh, it was guiding Netanyahu's hand with a knife. And actually, we just found out exclusive information that these children were being hid under the hospital, the ship hospital in the imaginary tunnels. And they're actually going to grow up to be Hamas commanders because now our AI technology can tell us that they're going to be Hamas. They, they come up with something. Right, right. And they I've wouldn't live in prison. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm confident on that point. He could murder someone on live television with all the facts there laid to bear. And they wouldn't do anything. Yeah. 
I mean, that's, I think that's, I mean, that's literally what we're watching happen right now. You know, I mean, it's, it's just on a on a broad scale, more than one person, you know, it's, and to your point about Netanyahu being, uh, which I didn't comment on earlier about being, him, you know, the scapegoat, like they're trying to set that up, which both shows you one, they don't care whether or not people are killed in Gaza. Like let that go on for a few more days so we can get Netanyahu. It's just obvious they're allowing that to continue with their weapon sales as well as just being complicit, but that. As you pointed out, even if he is out of the way, it's not going to change what's really going on. But it's it's I, I do think that's where this ends up, where they seemingly it makes most sense that they would try to lay this at his feet because he's already unpopular, move him out of the way and then just go back to business as usual. But I don't think people are going to buy that. I don't I don't even think the Israeli population is going to buy. I think they're more angry right now about what the I think. Actually, let me know if you agree with this, not just Netanyahu, but the larger coalition at this point. Um, I think they're very angry at a number of people because the blame game is going to begin as soon as mm-hmm. this war stops and they're going to start turning on each other because yeah. everyone's going to be pointing fingers. It's like, it was the military. No, it was Netanyahu. No, it was uh, the security minister. It was this guy. It was his rhetoric. Uh, she was guarding the fence. Like that's mm-hmm. going to be the way that this, uh, this uh, sort of develops when uh, everything ends and Netanyahu will be removed from power. And they might put him in prison for uh, corruption charges or whatever. Uh, definitely not genocide because they believe what they're doing is, you know, uh, wonderful. And it's uh, the work of the most moral army on earth and, and all the rest of their nonsense that they believe there. Um, but I, I think people are very angry, but they don't know where to aim the anger exactly. So, you know, it's being harnessed by different political forces and, and you know, thrown in different ways. Um, and, and none of them you see no israelis other than a few who have always been on you know the side of justice who've always known what's going on and from before this understood uh, the situation very well um the majority of them still can't understand why hamas did this and that's why the israeli government have tried to make them look so dirty and so horrible and uh, the, the palestinians must be a bunch of savages because why would they want to do this mm-hmm. um and that's the explanation they're given. Palestinians are savage animals, basically, and that they're all horrible people and they're dirty and they're not human and they're not like us and they're an enemy and they're anti-Semites and they're Hitler and everything else um, because they can't face the reality that there's a reason this happened. Mm. There is a reason. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not me going, oh, well, every single thing that uh, happened is justified and individual cases of this and that were, right. that's fine. That's not me saying that. It's me saying exactly what the UN Secretary General said, and that's that it didn't happen in a vacuum. Right. It wouldn't have happened if you did not keep Gaza under a siege for 17 years. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't happen if earlier this year you attacked and bombed Gaza unprovoked. It wouldn't have happened if you didn't attack Gaza last year. It wouldn't have happened if you didn't attack Gaza the year before that and mm-hmm. the year before that and the year before that. It wouldn't have happened if you committed, didn't commit your massive massacre in 2014, in 2012, in 2008, in 2006. It wouldn't have happened if you didn't, if you just left people to live. Right. It would have never have happened if you just as, let the people live. As they, Dave's, oh, go ahead. No, no, I, I finished the point. Um, oh, sorry, it's just a little bit of delay for me on the side. But so, as, as Dave Smith said, which I think is a powerful point, <clears throat> that should if the Israeli government truly did want peace as they pretend to, which their own statements, especially now, they there is no two-state solution. They've come out of the gate with that now, even though, as you know well, it's always been the reality that they've actively tried to stop that, as even that Haaretz point makes, where they funded Hamas to make sure that they didn't get that state. It's very simple, and he, he said he's proud of that today. 
But the, the interesting point that he, Dave Smith argued, you know, sh should they have wanted peace? They could have used this. They, like after October 7th, if the argument is that we Hamas is the bad guy and we want to make peace with the good people of Palestine, that they could have used this moment to say, look, let's here's a real two state solution. Like, you know, on the back of this horrible thing that we have, we argue we have every right to just do what they're doing now. And we offered a real solution that was genuine, like as if that would actually happen from these groups and that they would accept that and then make peace with the Palestinians and together fight Hamas. Like that would literally change the world in a little in many different ways. Right. Because of how much this topic influences so many things. But of course, that's not what happens. Like you said, they don't even go to the UN to legally justify what they do. They just jump right over and commit genocide and all the rulers of the world completely go along with it as even their peoples push back on it. You know, it's it's just very clear that to everybody, I think, right now that this is genocide. And to that point, there is an endless amount, as you've seen. And again, brother, if you need to jump off, go ahead. Um, but I, I'd love for you to stick around. Uh, Abu Bakar Hussein points out 322 fully sourced examples of dehumanizing, pro-genocidal, ethnic cleansing statements, as you've well covered and we've all pointed out. And this is actually really in-depth if you want to dive through it. <clears throat> and here's a clip I'll play from Decentered News. Israeli historian Raz Siegel says Israel is very deeply immersed in a genocidal discourse. He says where we see clear incitement to genocide, a crime in and of itself under the Geneva Convention, you don't need a degree in comparative literature to interpret these kinds of signs and statements. So I think this is an important clip. To, uh, uh, that again, we can elaborate more on perhaps is incitement, right? Which is again, a different crime in the Genocide Convention. That's Article 3, but related. So incitement to genocide, which usually happens actually in media discourses, but also in political discourses uh, or in just in uh, sometimes in public uh, uh, spaces in various ways. And it's important to say that um, Israel today and anyone who follows Hebrew language sources, and they're all over social media today and Israeli media, Israel is you know, very deeply immersed in a genocidal discourse. We see this in the media, since in the Israeli media since 7th of October. We see this in politics. We see this in public spaces. And I'm talking about, you know, huge signs hanging on the bridges of the Tel Aviv freeway right after the 7th of October, wow. calling to flatten Gaza, to destroy Gaza, uh, written uh, on them directly, that the image of triumph would be zero people in Gaza. So very direct, again, very explicit. It does not, you know, you don't need a degree in comparative literature to interpret these uh, uh, kinds of uh, signs and statements. In the media discourse and in the political discourse in Israel so after 7th of October, we see clear incitement to genocide, right? Clear, clear incitement to genocide. And all this has been widely published uh, and we can you know i can repeat some of the quotes uh, uh, here if needed but it's important to say that you know one of the cases that comes close to this kind of society immersed in a genocidal discourse perhaps is rwanda and the rwanda genocide in 1994 that as the genocide was unfolding right we had journalists uh, and radio uh, people inciting uh, for genocide for the murder of tutsis in that case and it's important to say that in the ICTR, in the post-genocide trials, in the case of Rwanda, there was also a media case where journalists indeed stood trial and were convicted for incitement to genocide. So that's another element that actually differentiates genocide from other crimes in international law. 
And again, we see here, like the issue of intent, which is an article too, and refers to people with what's called command authority in international law. So state leaders, uh, war cabinet ministers, and senior army officers. Um, uh, also, their statements are very clear, explicit, and unashamed. Also, incitement in Israel is clear, explicit, and unashamed. Just to give a recent example, a journalist, Tzvi Chaskeli, on Channel 13 on the TV in Israel, just openly outright uh, uh, said that uh, he thinks that at the beginning, Israel made a mistake because it should have, the, the, the Israeli attack on Gaza should have been much more actually violent and severe, and it should have killed 100,000 Palestinians, right? Now, only the, uh, uh, the TV anchor there, you know, said, are you sure that that's what you're saying? There was some exchange between them, you know, is this, uh, all the other people there sitting uh, 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 had nothing to say. And the official response of Channel 13 of the Israeli TV to that was that it's, you know, that we're just expressing the plurality of, you know, positions in Israeli society, right? So this is outright unashamed, right? Uh, It's very common today, it's in Israel, uh, and it's something I think we should all be paying attention to. And for the podcast, that's the, the Israeli historian. And then it backs up your point perfectly, Robert, right? He's telling you right there, that is the majority of people in, in, in the country, right? And that's, it, of course, if you say this in another context, as in another place, you're a racist, right? But here is an Israeli Jew saying this about, you know, and it's, it's just, this is the conflict around what we're seeing. You know, pointing out an obvious objective reality is not racist, regardless of whether that insults somebody or whether that is you know, highlighting an uncomfortable fact of a government. You know, it's, just, it's frustrating how often this happens. Do you have any any comments on that clip? Uh, like, uh, I mean, uh, that's what we've been seeing coming out of the Israeli media frequently, that they're always mm-hmm. saying that. I mean, that specific statement about 100,000 people is one on its own. Um, but it's very similar to a lot of the other uh, things that we've been hearing. And I mean, it's not just that. You've got Israeli... Uh, soldiers who are, you know, at these mini concerts they set up for them and they're dancing around and and talking about decimating Gaza and there's going to be no more Gaza and even making anti-black statements in the midst of that because they're so incredibly racist. That's the thing that we're talking about a genocidal racist regime with a genocidal racist uh, population, the majority of them. And that's just the the, the reality. I wish that wasn't the case. And people will go to that, well, you're the anti-Semite for pointing out how racist they are. It's like, I've lived there. I know how racist they are. I've seen Israeli soldiers shoot children myself. Like, it, it's it's something where you, I can't throw it in the face. If you're going to go in the Jim Crow South, the majority of people there were uh, supporting the system. And to speak his- historically, you're just anti-white. Well, no, like, okay, people supported Jim Crow, uh, Jim Crow laws. That just happened. Yeah, the government supported it too. That happened. It's not anti-white to say it. It's just a reality of history. Right. People own slaves. Are, are, are you saying, are you saying that all white people are slave owners? What, what, where does this stuff come in? That's a blood libel. Like, right. no, it's a historical fact which happened. And this is what a population did. White South Africans. During the apartheid era, if you're going to talk about their sentiments towards black people and what they thought about black people, and you're going to pull up examples of what they said on their shows about black people, and and then they turn around and go, you're just anti-white South African. You're Mm -hmm. anti-Afrikaner. It's like, 
uh, that's just ridiculous. I mean, we'd yeah. all laugh it out the room, but because they weaponized this statement of going, you're an anti-Semite, you're doing blood libel, that's an anti-Semitic trope. And all. I'm sorry, it's just nonsense and everyone's ignoring it now, including a lot of Jewish people as well, especially right. a lot of Jewish people who are extremely pissed off by all of this nonsense because it's like in their name it's being done and they're here in Western countries watching this genocidal racist maniac regime uh, commit a genocide against uh, an innocent civilian population and then they're seeing why am i being roped into this mm-hmm. why is the memory of the holocaust being roped into this they're sitting there and they're thinking that and that's why you see so many young jewish people especially coming out and speaking against this because they're like oh my god again again i'm being yeah. roped into this into war crimes and bombing civilians and killing children and like, that's the bigger that's the bigger point to, to tie like to your the I think it's more specifically about it in this case, you know, because look, there there are people that live in Israel that aren't Jewish, as you well know, that are equally kind of wrapped up in the propaganda. So it's really specifically, it's definitely aimed at Jewish people. I think that's obvious. That's a Zionist manipulation, but that it's more about the Israeli Zionist overlap than specifically, like, as you're pointing out, there's plenty of Jew, Jewish groups, Jewish individuals all around the world who don't agree or in Israel, plenty of, I, they get beat up by the IDF all the time for calling this stuff out, you know? So it's, it's, it's like you said, it's stating out an obvious fact. And if that, and to try to pl- pretend that by stating that fact, you're racist, it in fact, just, it just, it like drives racism. That's the point we're going to get to in a second about the idea of weaponizing anti-Semitism. in fact, makes Jews unsafe, you know, and that's the whole point or more less safe than they are. And really quickly to that point you made. Cuts News just shared this, and it's exactly the point you're making. A family of a black Israeli soldier who was neutralized in Gaza can t- complains that no one visited them, unlike the families of the other Israeli soldiers. You know, and, and again, this is not a secret. I mean, the to ask Ethiopian Jews how they're treated in Israel, it's obvious that there's an that it's different. And, you know, you know, th- their statements, again, if you actually pay attention, make it very clear that that's how they feel from a from a Israeli government perspective, you know. Yeah, then, let, a, there's a tier as well. Like this is the thing they sort of have their Jewish caste system there. Mm-hmm. Like that's the thing that people don't know about that because there's a lot of, uh, you know, racism and persecution uh, by Ashkenazi Jews against uh, Sephardic Jews and, mm-hmm. uh, and Ethiopian Jews. And there's sort of the system, like a tier system, deba- depending upon your skin color there. And there has been, there's a long history of this and there's a long history of the, uh, of the white Ashkenazi Jews, uh, discriminating against Iraqi Jews and Yemeni Jews and Syrian Jews and Egyptian mm-hmm. Jews and Ethiopians, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There was an, even an Israeli Black Panthers Party, uh, which a lot of people don't know about, which was formed of like uh, of Middle Eastern uh, and North African Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, because of the discrimination. For instance, uh, I'm sure you know about this, uh, but they stole the children from Yemeni Jewish parents thousands of them and they placed them in uh the care of uh white jewish families and some of them disappeared there were allegations of experimenting on them as well just real quick this is just this is just like like the native american aspect like it just never stops like we can't pretend like this is not the same old horrifying worst example of racism it's sort of apartheid is sorry i should point that out it makes me frustrated that we can't be honest about it go ahead 
No, it's the same thing. And you see that, for instance, like what they did I'm, I'm in Canada right now uh, with the residential schools here. It's the same thing with, in Australia, where I used to live uh, with uh, the stolen generation. Exactly. The exact same thing. You know, to you know, they need to get the savage out of the indigenous population. So they need to, you know, uh, give them to uh, families other than their own, to steal the children away and to put them in schools and re-educate them and re- change their mind. Um, and they did this. And this is the thing as well. They robbed the the Jews from uh, the Middle East of their culture and their language in many ways. Yeah. They re- preserve some of it, but most of them don't. They're, they're kids now. They don't speak Arabic. They're, they're, and they're, they're taught to hate themselves to a certain extent. That's right. why some of the, the craziest soldiers in the army that you'll see are not the white Jews most of the time. The most crazy soldiers are the ones trying to prove themselves to the rest. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't know this about what it, the Israeli society because it's completely hidden and, and it's something that people don't talk about. But yeah, there's a system of racism there within the Jewish society as well. Uh, so it's not just a, a Jewish racism uh, against uh, Arabs uh, and, and non-Jews. No, it, it's also as well, like there's this internal situation which is going on. The most impoverished, uh, for instance, uh, people, well, you look at the poorest people, where do they live? They live in the South. Uh, this is another thing perhaps we could get into another day and there's lots of elements. Another thing that we have to get into is probably the, the history of Hamas uh, at yeah. another time as well. But most we'll, uh, we'll leave that to another point. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I really, I really, I was plan on it because I think these are all really important, deeper dives to have. I was just going to point out since you brought up the point about it. And if you want to quickly explain to people where the term blood libel comes from, I've done it on the show in the past. It's just interesting. The context he's saying, you know, the UN is basically saying genocide is when you kill seriously harm or inflict unlivable conditions on a group. Israel says, you know, their statements we just discussed, we'll make Gaza unlivable. Gaza's our Amalek. We'll slaughter man, woman, child. They've made all these statements. South Africa says, well, that's genocide. Israel says, how dare you? That's blood libel. It just shows you how ridiculous this is. And it's a point you just made, actually, that it's not blood libel to acknowledge that you just said you're doing or you're doing what you just said you're going to do, you know? And, and you, could you, what's the, give me the quick, quick, quick background to blood libel. It comes from like the allegation against Jews, right? In regard to. Yeah. So, so it's a the blood libel allegation was used in order to murder and expel Jewish populations in Europe. Mm-hmm. So, like, this is the thing, like, uh, <laughs> to try and accuse them of blood libel, like, uh, well, you're where where is the threat coming by saying that under international law you're doing the thing that you said you're doing? Right. Like, it makes no sense. And like it's it's ridiculous to even I I don't even feel most of the time like going into it I feel like laughing at it it's mm-hmm. the same like the accusations of anti semite you're an anti semite okay even if I was refute my point okay it, right like, right exactly but then on to the main obvious reality is that you're not but the, to your point the yeah. point you're making there is that you're not even engaging with the logical argument we made like you're you just can't you well you, like. Whether or not this person's racist, are you going to ask why your government murdered people? You know, it's like it just becomes this. It's obvious that that's the point I made earlier, that it seems right now all we're really dealing with are people that are like really three categories, like afraid to even get into this conversation, but mostly see it. People that see it are screaming about it and people that are invested in the interest of Israel. Like, I don't know anybody I've talked to. Everybody I talk to is in one of those three categories. And it's not like, I'm not sure. This is probably one of the, I'm beginning to think this is more obvious than the way I think people were seeing what COVID-19 was at the end, you know? And it's, it's for things like this. 
Israel minister is now openly calling for the return of Jewish settlers to the Gaza Strip. When I said that in the beginning, we were called racist and a conspiracy theorist. You know, it's actually on the surface what they're doing. Former Israeli settlers yearn to return to Gaza. You know, illegal settlers. Smotrich touts the revival of the Gaza settlement after war once Gazans encouraged to leave. Don't you love this new dynamic now? They're talking about voluntary displacement, like like what's happened so far is with, you know, that's what they're now doing. Asking them, would you mind going to Egypt? Like as they're starving with in a, in a desert on the S, you know, anyway, what, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> it's so voluntary. We destroyed your home and killed, wiped out half your family. And then afterwards we said, hey, you can go into the desert if you want. Like that's voluntary, of course. Uh, but no, like this whole idea of them bringing settlements into Gaza, <clears throat> unless they completely wipe the population from Gaza, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's a pipe dream. Right. But it's their genocidal ambitions and this bloodlust. They want to see everyone dead, so much blood and killing and murder. And <clears throat> they, they you know, get off of this stuff. I mean, look at how the soldiers are carrying on. And, and by the way, these reports will start to emerge in more detail soon. But in the north of the Gaza Strip, where there's hundreds of thousands of people still, there's various allegations of sexual assault. They're mm-hmm. executing people at random, throwing women, pregnant women off of roofs. All sorts of things. I hear news stories every single day uh, of people being released from the detention and like uh, everyone in the group, basically, they had all their bones broken. Um, I heard the other day of someone who was released and um, from the group, only he and another were able to walk. The rest of them weren't even able to walk. That's how badly they were beaten. They were like, their bones are broken in their legs. So the way that they're treating them, in one case, they shot dead the men the husbands and fathers in front of uh, their children and wives. And then they uh, took the women and children into a room and threw a grenade in the room. Which, uh, which That's the sort of stuff that they're doing. Which interestingly ties back to the allegation about what Hamas did on October 7th. And there's all these weird overlaps to the, as people have argued, they tend to accuse them of that which you are guilty, which is a classic propaganda tactic, right? It's And you know what's dangerous about this? And this is why I, I truly despise Western media. I despise them. The Israelis, they're going to say whatever they're going to say. But you disgusting, despicable pieces of human filth who call themselves journalists, who repeated these lies, egged on these Israelis to do this. Mm -hmm. Those soldiers there now believe this nonsense because the U.S. president was reporting the same thing and saying he saw confirmed photos of beheaded babies. They're committing these atrocities with more anger and more hatred in their hearts, right? Because they believe all this nonsense crap that they say about October 7th. Oh, they, they, um, you know, they mutilated the woman's body and the, the Hamas fighters were gang raping and and throwing around the breasts and beheading the women and and hanging the baby on clothing lines and uh beheading all of the babies 40 babies and everything that you can imagine this is the most disgusting made up nonsense that you've ever heard and they repeat it constantly and then this whole thing that the new york times and every other media outlet in the west like well there is proof where's the proof of uh, the mass rapes i want an independent investigation by the way if it happened, 100%, you're going to get a condemnation from me. Right. I'm not right. going to sit here and justify that. That's disgusting. There's no way to justify that. However, is there a single person? They, this is what they say to you when you go, okay, where's the females? They say, believe all Israeli women. Okay, where's the Israeli 
woman that's alleging that she was sexually assaulted and raped. Right. There, there are none. It's so the they're only claiming to, to relay what they say right. is what they're claiming. That's it. Yeah, it's like, believe what men say about what Israeli women allegedly went through. And they've right. got no physical evidence of it. They've got no women accusers. And the one woman that came forward with an actual story saying she saw another woman raped said this nonsense story about all of these women being beheaded mm-hmm. in her accounts of what was happening. And we know that there weren't all these women beheaded. Right. So obviously I'm, she's a known liar. I'm showing this on the, for the podcast, the, the Haaretz article, where they literally break this down. And it's, it's, the title is the Hamas Ma- – and by the way, the Hebrew version of this is way more important than the one that came out in English, which waters it down. The Hamas massacre led to the spread of horror stories, not all of which happened in reality. And I'll include this as always, but you can read through these. Oh, I'll, I'll, this is the one that's behind the way. I'll have to get the way back machine version. But the, the point is that in this article, they openly discuss what you're saying, Robert. The fact that there were no beheaded people. There were no – rather, the specifically, there's no proof. Evidence, you could argue, is an allegation as a person, you know, people seeing certain things, but no proof of rape, yeah. no proof of beheaded babies, let alone human beings in, in, in the context of the uh, even Owen Jones from The Guardian made that statement. Um, this is an important one. Actually, I'll do this real quick since I want to show this. The, the guy from Zaka, right, that group that's been he, this, this individual has been specifically the one who's been going around and repeating the story over and over. And it's it's not true. Even Haaretz says very clearly that the idea that one, a baby put in an oven didn't happen, as well as the fact that um, the mother's stomach being cut open and open, that didn't happen either. And that's this guy right here. He continues to go around and make these statements to this very day. And they make it in this very article. They say, that's just not true. It did not happen. I just find it crazy that they just continue to double down you know, on the, on the evidence and the rape allegations I've gone really deep on in general. Like we, again, we could probably follow up on that, but they've, they've used images that we've proven were from 2022. The, the, I prove I'm using basic science and, and medicine or rather, I guess health. I pointed out that the idea of the pelvis bone being broken by somebody raping somebody is near impossible. The amount of weight it takes to do that is, is it's, it takes like a, a violent car crash. And I, I went over this in depth in the show. And so all these things are coming out that prove that they lied or, made some things happen to cover up what they did. I don't know. That's for the audience to decide, but that's a really uncomfortable reality. Now I, I want to, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. You know, there's allegations as well. And when they started pushing this really hard, allegations started coming out from Palestinian women, female prisoners who were released where they said that there were, uh, that the Israeli guards were raping them. Mm-hmm. So they'd started pushing it at this time. And Haaretz, by the way, participated in this. They said testimony after testimony. Yeah. I read the entire article and there's not a single testimony. They haven't right. taken any direct testimony. This that commission down. that was set up, haven't taken a single direct testimony yet. They've already drawn their conclusions on what they say that happened in the mass rape campaign. When the woman who's uh, heading it up, uh, LKM Levy, I forget her first name. Uh, that's her last name. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, she says, Oh, Oh, how dare you? I'm not going to fall into That's a dirty game to play. You're asking me to, to give an estimate on how many were raped. And then because she's like, journalists came to me, I'm paraphrasing, journalists Mm -hmm. came to me and they were asking, is it 10? Is it 100? Is it thousands? Can you give us an estimate? And I'm not going to play that game like she's morally above them. And she's connected to the prime minister's office and made legal justifications for like uh, torture methods and all sorts of nonsense. And and then she comes out like, it's the hardest thing I ever did is make these like allegations basically against Palestinians, which... 
are, are the equivalent to like, look at these savages. This is why we need to kill them. Believe mm-hmm. us. Believe Israeli men talking about Israeli women. But we're going to say Israeli women. It's like, right. she's an Israeli woman, but she's yeah. not the one making the allegation. Right, right. Well, and I'll include this. Here's the one you mentioned. I'll include this as well. And uh, it's you're right. I mean, this was this was the main point immediately pointed out testimony after testimony in this very article. They make the point that they have yet to take testimony. It's it's insulting. And then again, the larger point of all this is just here. This is her speaking about this exact discussion. I think it was Max Blumenthal that originally broke this and pointed out that this art, this image that was used on this website was Mm -hmm. old. I then found I caught that they had deleted it from this website after that was broke. But here's the actual image right here. And it's posted on Twitter from 2022. And it's it got a Kurdish woman from before. And she here she is literally producing that image in her presentation of that woman. And, you know, so right there alone, they're presenting this as factual information that we can prove is not true. So at the very least, to an objective person out there, you have to acknowledge that they have sent things out that are not true. And I would argue you can prove that they know that. And that and so like I said, same thing you said, I, I'm not, when that woman was brought out of the back of the Jeep, I said, that looks like she was probably sexually abused, but I'm not going to say I know that because we don't know what the context was. She could have been sitting in blood. We don't know. So my point was until we have more evidence, we don't know. And we've never gotten more. Oh, and um, since we're into this, I will include the, um, I'll find it when we're done. The times of Israel article where they go over the fact that their forensic evidence was not taken. And that time has now passed there. So no matter what they end up saying or who, claims they saw x y and z there's no legal evidence to even hold anybody accountable for it anymore so then that's what they state from in a court of law that's required so at this point by their own admission there is no proof it happened no matter what they say going forward it's yeah, just, there's, it's, there's yeah. none that would be admissible in court that's the right. thing like and and that allegation is hard to prove now you can't accuse somebody of a denial of that when you're saying you don't want an invent, independent investigation you're just right. saying hey believe me i've come up with like a billion weird stories which don't make any sense and are just counterfactual in, in various ways. And we change these narratives and stories and these people who allegedly saw this stuff, it turns out many of them had said a, a different story at different times or uh, you know, wasn't really there. Like, yeah. Uh, and like all of this uh, c- comes out and I point that out. And then Zaka, that uh, organization, which Max Blumenthal did a good piece on, uh, where he dug into his background and he was called the Heredi Jeffrey Epstein. Mm-hmm. So that's the guy who created this rescue organization, uh, which has been ripping off the Israeli government and lying to them to get more funding, um, you know, that goes around and, you know, tries to say, oh, we're heroes, but was founded by a serial rapist who raped men and women over decades. Um, So like the irony in a rapist creating an organization which is producing rape allegations against someone else um, and then being used as Israeli women's testimonies after testimonies uh, says everything you need to know about these allegations. Now, I'm open uh, to the possibility that things happened, but this Mm -hmm. idea that they have all of this wealth of evidence and, and, and all this proof will present the proof. Right. If if it happened, present it. I'm not someone that's going to sit here and deny and quarrel with the facts on this. Like I'm not. That's where this comes in. And that you've probably seen this as well. That's the Owen Jones from The Guardian was one of the people they invited to the special screening because that's what they're claiming, right? We have it, but we'll only show it to special people, which makes literally no sense to any kind of accountability or whatever. It's it's obvious a propaganda tool. He actually said that he did not see this stuff. 
Now you, you can, it's a, it's a 25 minute clip. He says this in there. You can listen for yourself. Uh, Dilly broke down what he said in there. And I went over this in depth in the show. He says very clearly, there's no proof of beheaded babies, no proof of Hamas killing children, no proof of rape, no proof of beheading humans alive. And then Hamas even asking party goers whether they were civilians or not. And the point was he gets done. He discusses this and he goes, you know, it's weird. They say this is going to prove everything and it didn't prove anything. So he, and then he goes out and sees people he was in that room with on social media going, it proved everything. It proved the rape. It proved this. And he's like, and this is his video. He's like, so I was, did I miss something? Right. So he reached out to an American journalist. He reached out to a British journalist, both of which were like, no, I didn't see it either. So it proves to us that not only are they, I guess, hoping that these selected journalists will take that as like a tap on the shoulder and like do what they're supposed to do. But that it, they're they're lying about it, that they're going out in the world and they're pre- professing to lie about proof when all they really had was Israel showing a still shot and saying, here's the context. Let me fill it in for you. Uh, it, it's crazy how obvious all of this is. Um, now, uh, let's let's finish with this point really quickly, and then we'll just wrap and I'll play that video to end. I, w- I did want your thoughts on this. So I'm glad you stuck around. I think this is really interesting. Uh, Yusuf uh, Manier point, pointed this out. I'll just read directly from the article. This is an op-ed um, from the Harvard Crimson. For the safety of Jews and Palestinians, stop weaponizing anti-Semitism. It says, during my long career as a Jewish educator and leader, including 13 years living in Jerusalem, I have seen and lived through my community's struggles now as an elder leader. With the benefit of hindsight, I feel compelled to speak to what I see as a disturbing trend gripping our campus and many others. The cynical weaponization of anti-Semitism by powerful forces who seek to intimidate ultimately silence legitimate criticism of Israel and of American policy on Israel. In most cases, it takes the form of bullying pro-Palestinian organizer, Palestine organizers. In others, these camp- campaigns prosecute, uh, persecute anyone who simply doesn't show due difference, due deference to the bullies. As a leader in the Jewish community, I am particularly alarmed by today's McCarthyist tactic of ma- manufacturing an anti-Semitic anti-Semitism scare, which in effect turns the very real issue of Jewish safety into a pawn in a cynical political game of to cover for Israel's deeply unpopular policies, even with Jews. With regard to Palestine, a recent poll found that 66% of all U.S. voters and 80% of the Democratic voters desire to end to, uh, to Israel's current war, for instance, he writes. What makes this trend particularly disturbing is the power differential. Billionaire donors and politically connected non-Jews and Jews alike on one side, targeting disproportionately people of vulnerable populations on the other, including students, untenured facu- faculty, persons of color, Muslims, especially Palestinian activists. That's just hilarious coming from people acting like they're fighting for all these things. And she says, let me speak directly to the Jewish students at Harvard. I know it's, it is alienating and hurtful to so many of you in, Jew- in campus Jewish organizations like Halil and Shabbat take positions that exclude your voices, the ones speaking against what's happening. To those students, she says, the Jewish tradition is much deeper than any organization. No one has a monopoly on Judaism. Like that in and of itself is called anti-Semitic. When you say something like that, Ben Shapiro himself called that anti-Semitic. Says, be boldly critical of Israel, not despite being Jewish, but because you are. As someone who spent over 40 years running programs in which Jews, often young people, were under my care, the safety of Jews has always been uh, my highest priority. And frankly, she says, the, the thing that keeps me up at night I have myself been the victim of anti-Semitism, including on more than one occasion, serious violent attacks. She says, I know the anti-Semitism looks like what it looks like, and I do not take the issue of violence against Jews lightly. I have monitored with vet, with village, vigilance, excuse me, the kinds of speech that Israel-aligned parties are calling anti-Semitic, and it simply does not pass the sniff test. Let me speak plainly. It is not anti-Semitic. 
to demand justice for all Palestinians living in their ancestral lands. The activists who employ this language in the politics of liberation are sincere people. That's such an important point right now. Their cause is a legitimate and important movement dis, uh, uh, dissenting against the brutal treatment of Palestinians that has been ongoing for 75 years. If Israel's cause is just, let it speak eloquently in its own defense. It is very telling that some of Israel's own supporters instead go to extraordinary lengths to utterly silence the other side. Smearing one's opponents is rarely a tactic employed by those confident that justice is on their side. If Israel's case requires branding its critics anti-Semites, it's already conceding defeat. We must put aside all fabricated and weaponized charges of anti-Semitism that serve to silence criticism of Israeli policy and sponsors in the U.S. As a Jewish leader, she says enough. Any comments on that before we kind of wrap? I think it's important that uh, that came out and that there are other prominent Jewish voices who are speaking out against this, because at the end of the day, what happens as a result of uh, Israeli policy and then all of these psychopaths who uh, try and say that, uh, you know, if you're against Zionism, we have to include the Congress in this list of psychopaths. Mm -hmm. um, if you're against Zionism, then you're anti-Semitic. Well, now, because you're blurring these lines and you're basically equating all Jews with the actions of the Israeli regime around the world, essentially you're saying that Jews don't belong to the countries that they're in. They're right. all loyal to Israel, which I don't believe is true. Right. And, and most, uh, most people living here would not be, even if they have some affinity, right, with their background or whatever, and they have that feeling – they live in these countries and they should be treated as they are a U.S. citizen, a Canadian citizen, whatever they are. Um, and this is the original idea of anti-Semitism, by the way. You're not from here. You're not a Brit. You're not a German. You're not. Oh, that's French. interesting. You're, not, you're like that was the idea. And that was why Israel really was the project of Israel was needed. Zionism was needed and Zionism um, became a movement. Because it was the answer to this idea, this uh, European idea that you're not from here. You should go somewhere else because you're not part of us. We don't belong in our communities. You're different to us. And so the Zionists came along and said, yeah, we are different to you. And yeah, we need somewhere else. Like, uh, And then they had a discussion. Maybe it should be Uganda. Maybe it should be Madagascar. Mm -hmm. Maybe it should be Argentina. And they're like, no, Palestine makes more sense. So they went to Palestine. And then they took the land from the Palestinians and the Europeans are like, this is great. They're listening to us. They're going to go away. We're not going to deal with Jewish people. So like this whole idea of equating the Israelis and all Jewish people in itself is inherently an anti-Semitic idea. I would argue that Zionism and many strains of Zionism is anti-Semitic. It is. It's like a sellout movement to uh, the people that didn't want you in their countries. This They're is like, really fascinating. This is such an important point. I've, I mean, I've, I, I feel like I've even discussed, I haven't like connected this in my mind the way you just did. The idea how, I mean, my point that I've been really kind of hammering home for people that are finally willing to entertain these thoughts is that Zionism is very clearly using Judaism, right? It is, I mean, Orthodox Jews speak out about this. I, 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 I reference Avi Shalom often in his, his, his discussions about the real history of Zionism, bombing Jews in Iraq to drive them into Israel, you know, that kind of element to it, which to your point makes it literally then... Clearly, they're the ones being anti-Semitic using this group. But what's mm -hmm. fascinating, what you just said there, is that it, it, whether it started that way or not, you could just frame it as coming full circle, where it starts where they're saying it's anti-Semitic, that you're claiming that we don't belong here, that we're not part of these countries. And then an entity claiming to defend them literally enshrines 
the origin of anti-Semitism as the core point of who they are as a population. That's wild when you really think about how obvious it is and showing you their true intentions at the end of the day. The Zionist entity is what I'm talking about. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. And and interestingly as well, who are their best friends? All of the countries that hated them and the populations that uh, expelled them. They're their best friends today. The biggest anti-Semites on earth are all their best friends. That's so crazy. This is the thing. The people that hate the Jew- Jewish people the most are, are their best friends. So it's a complete sellout movement. And then they come and they go and the U.S. Congress accepts it that if you, you're anti-Zionism, then you're, you're for anti-Semitism. Uh, you're basically saying that all Jews are not loyal and they're not actually citizens of the United States or Canada or the U.K. or France or whatever, which is the problem to begin with. That's the problem to begin with is that notion of they're not part of us. They're some foreign other and they should be somewhere else and they should get out of our. And then that leads to obviously when people go, okay, so if like Zionism, like anti-Semitism is anti-Zionism, well, I'm against what Israel is doing because Israel's killing and committing a genocide. Mm -hmm. So that what they're doing is they're saying, if you're anti-genocide, essentially you're anti-Semitic. So what do you think that's going to translate to for a lot of people? People are just going to end up hating Jewish people. And you're right. going to have attacks on Jewish people who have nothing to do with this. So it's important that, uh, that loads of voices are coming out and people are speaking about this because it's just like you're trying you're pulling your own hair out because these people are calling you an anti-Semite for pointing out war crimes and then they're and their racism. <laughs> and then they turn around and they're roping in populations in other countries um and as a result there's going to be attacks on them and hatred towards them right the israelis don't care because they're somewhere else well it's i it's the point is to make the zionist or have it good blame the jews that's exactly why we did this right that's the whole argument right and and the point you made about that that's the thing they want that they want everyone yeah bring them all here we need more expel them from their country that's crazy and and the point being about even the even the dual citizen point you made there, right? Is that's always been called an anti-Semitic trope, but you make the point you're making is that's being also enshrined by the very Zionist practices that they're enrolling. So it's, it's yeah, it's self-fulfilling prophecy ultimately. Like they're creating the very thing they point at, which again, these are things that have been openly discussed, but for me, connecting it to that main point about the origin of what you called it to where we are now, I just found that connected for me. That was, that was very insightful. So let, let's end with um, a clip from... Uh, this was actually posted by me, but this was a clip from a, a girl named uh, uh, Gia. Uh, is it, how do you pronounce that? Is it Gaia or Gia? How do you pronounce that? G-A-I-A? Don. Yeah, and she's 23 years old, and she's basically speaking out about um, – I'll end with this video and then one more, and, and we'll kind of end with that. But she's saying uh, what I just wrote. She's one of many Israeli Jews who regularly protest against the Zionist regime. Since October 7th, however, she's been repeatedly arrested and abused by the IDF for activism, which, by the way, she talks about it's happened before, but it's gotten worse after October 7th. And in the process, they've been calling her a slut, a traitor, being violent with her. And I just want to show people this is what and she's an Israeli Jew. Right. The point is that it's as Robert's making clear, if you just simply go afoul of the Zionist agenda, it doesn't really matter what you look like, what you are. And I think that's the important point. Again, that was in why this article was important, because that's what they're saying. What they're doing, the way what Robert just described is, in fact, creating the very thing they claim they're trying to stop. That's exactly what the U.S. government does. It's a common tactic, but they're making it more unsafe for these people. So anything else you want to leave us with, Robert, before I play this clip and then the last one, which this will be the last one, which you'll, you might have seen this. I think it's a very powerful speech. 
they just gave at the uh, UN Security Council. But um, any comments you want to leave us with before we wrap today? And th- thanks for joining, brother. I always enjoy our talks. No, I just say that, uh, you know, my thoughts are with uh, the people of Gaza and, and especially, you know, being a journalist, uh, my thoughts are with the uh, journalists on the ground in Gaza and yeah. all the amazing work they've been doing. And, um, you know, everyone should go and uh, get their news from these journalists um, and and follow them online and uh, keep up to date with them because they're risking their lives to bring everybody the truth. And uh, they're amazing, the work that they're doing on the ground. And I've been astonished by some the young journalists there, some of whom I'm, I'm good friends with as well. So, um, yeah, I'd say keep uh, the people of Gaza in your prayers. Don't stop talking about Gaza. Um, and this is an issue which concerns everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just concerning the people of Palestine and uh, the Israelis who are committing this. Uh, everyone uh, should be concerned with this. Yeah, I agree, man. And I think the numbers are well over 100 now, right? If I remember correctly, of journalists that have been killed. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> No, just yet one one of many unprecedented numbers in this context. UN members killed, journalists killed, unprecedented, and yet we're acting like this is one in a, one in a long line of other. You know, anyway, I, I thank you for taking the time to talk about this, and I look forward to our upcoming conversations about those deep dives. Um, yeah, and thanks for joining me today, brother. And I'll leave you guys with these two clips. Uh, and this one is her speaking about what she's dealing with, and we'll end with the clip from the Palestine uh, presentation which I really do make sure you listen to this guys on the way out. This is powerful. So as always question, everything come to your own conclusions, stay vigilant. I'm 23 years old from Haifa. I'm an activist in the anti-occupation block. And ever since the 7th of October, me and my friends are being harassed and sometimes arrested over our attempts of protesting against the ongoing atrocities in Gaza and the West Bank. Freedom of speech and the freedom to protest was always limited here. But these days, it's almost impossible to say you're against the war without fearing for your safety or your freedom being taken away. And it's even more dangerous if you're a Palestinian. During my arrest about a month ago, uh, because I protested in Cholef Center against the war, the cops in the station kept chanting songs about returning to Gush Katif settlement and about killing the people of Gaza. They kept calling us sluts and they called us, uh, they called us traitors. We cannot let them to silence us like they wish they can do. And we cannot allow ourselves to sit in silence while the people of Gaza are being massacred and the people of the West Bank are suffering in the hands of settlers and the military. I plead all who's watching to take action against the silencing of us, but most importantly, to raise your voice against the ongoing massacre in Gaza right now. Israel has reacted with disregard and disdain. Why are they getting away with murder at this unprecedented scale? Because they were never held accountable. That is why they confess to their crimes. That is why they steal our lives, our land, our resources, our money, our past, our present, and our future in broad daylight. Mr. President, one day the massacres will stop. But how will we get over it? How will we get over the mass graves, the inability to bury our loved ones, to offer them a dignified burial, seeing them in plastic bags? How will we get over 1,000 Palestinian children amputated without anesthesia? Can you hear their screams? 
Can you feel their pain? Can you imagine if they were your own children? How can we get over 8,000 Palestinians under the rubble? Those who were blessed to die quickly and those who endured a terrible and terrifying death, a slow death under the rubble while we were unable to save them. How do you get over a genocide? We will be asked, nevertheless, despite all that we are enduring and all that we have endured for 75 years, to move on, to count our dead one more time, to count our wounded, our permanently disabled, the people scarred for life, the millions of victims, and move on. We will be asked to be peaceful. We will be asked to be grateful that this horrible chapter, among so many other chapters, even though this one is the worst one we have gone through, is over until the next one begins. This is the ultimate expression of double standards. The other side is never asked to move on if Israelis are killed, never asked to be peaceful in such situations. This is the ultimate expression of racism, of dehumanization of our nation. We shall all be subject to the same rules, to the same expectations. We should all have our humanity recognized and respected. Those who have dared till now to find a way or another to justify what is happening in the Gaza Strip will have to endure shame forever. For those calling on our people not to seek vengeance, not to resort to violence, they must support our efforts to deliver justice. That is the path we have chosen, justice, not vengeance. But till now, that path has been obstructed in the face of the Palestinian people, and no one has ever been held accountable for the crimes committed against them. Israeli impunity cannot be allowed to survive this assault. So finally, Palestinian survivors can live with the sense that the massacres will not resume. The horrors this impunity has led to will continue occurring until this is brought to an end. Mr. President, the world is discovering the true Gaza while Israel is destroying it. They discover as Israel destroys our university and schools that we have one of the highest literacy rates in the world. They discover as Israel destroys our historic mosques and churches that we have religious diversity and a Christian community in Gaza that is an integral part of our history, our present and our future. The world discovers the name of brave Palestinian journalists and doctors as they learned they were killed. They discover about a young Palestinian generation that was able to be creative and to perform and to try to lead a life in impossible circumstances, only to face death once again. The world discovers human beings who, despite repeated assaults and a decade and a half of blockade, somehow preserved hope, cultivated it, built their homes to, the, to see them destroyed, built them once more, saw them destroyed once more, built them again, built their lives despite loss and suffering from the, within the wounds they were able to rise again, only to face death once again. They found a way back to life, only to see death and destruction haunting them once more. Until when? 
That is what Israel is attacking. Hope. That is its greatest enemy. The fact the Palestinian people have not relinquished hope. The ability of our people to resurrect. They want to make sure that Palestinians in Gaza have no homes to return to. They want to make sure they have no life to return to. They want to make sure that life in Gaza is no longer possible. With one aim, what they call voluntary migration. Voluntary. 21,000 people killed, half of them almost children. And by the way, we mentioned the children and the women. Many innocent men have been killed. Voluntary migration, the code name for forced displacement. These are the options for Palestinians. Destruction or displacement, death or displacement.